Hey everyone, this is Wayne and the Greenfeld Podcast, and this is a tough one for me because uh, many of you know I lost Lisa, my dog, just a few weeks ago, and I may lose my other dog, Oliver, for the next few years. Not because he's in any sort of physical danger or he's going to be physically taken away, but because, well, I might be. I'm going to trial, my first trial as an activist on November 29th in relation to the removal of a baby goat named Rain from a meat farm in Transylvania County, North Carolina. And if we lose this trial, I could be out of Oliver's life. I could be out of all your lives in the next couple of years. So this could be my last podcast for a while. But I can think of nobody better on this planet, frankly, to speak to about how to win in court than the person we have on the podcast today, Evan Wilson. Evan Wilson is a legendary gay rights activist and lawyer who in the early 1980s predicted that gay marriage would be a constitutional right in one generation. And his prediction came true in 2014, I think it was, when the Supreme Court of the United States did, in fact, enshrine gay marriage as a constitutional right. But the key thing about Evan's story, and what you'll learn from this podcast, is there were a lot of defeats on the path to victory. And what effective social movements and activists need to learn is how to, what Evan Wilson calls, lose forward. Let me just say that again, lose forward. And the idea is this. You're going to face a lot of obstacles on the path to success, and you need to learn how to take those defeats and use them to build the foundation for your ultimate victory. And that's what we're going to do in this podcast together. So there's a whole lot of really interesting personal details too, including Evan's attempts earlier in his life to date women, the struggles he had at Harvard Law School to get any of his professors to even talk to him about this issue, and so many other things that I think you'll find incredibly interesting, even beyond their educational value for us as activists and people who care about social change. But really, you just got to listen to Evan. So without further ado, here's Evan Wilson. Tell me what you were just saying. You just saw some pigeons, Evan? That- so, yeah, when we were in Italy, uh, we were just, you know, people watching and sitting in squares and so on and happened to notice a number of pigeons who seemed to either have one foot or uh, injured feet, you know, and were hopping around going after the various crumbs and so on. And then just yesterday in, in Union Square here, I happened to notice another one. I, what I was going to ask you was, wh- wh- why is that? Why are so many pigeons injured? Yeah, I'm not an expert in this, but I've I've got a lot of friends who work on this issue all the time. And my understanding is just it's the profusion of garbage and string out there and pigeons are getting their legs caught up in wire. Mm -hmm. And when the wire string wraps up around their leg, it constricts their blood supply and their foot just dies off and falls out. But pigeons do surprisingly well with one foot. It's kind of amazing. I mean, it's incredibly painful, not a happy existence for them, Mm -hmm. but they're resilient animals. But speaking of resilience, (laughs) I am... Just so honored. I mean, I, I hope I haven't been too embarrassing in the last hour, Evan, because like I'm a little I, giddy just I, being. I, I've in a rarely table been ca- compared to a pigeon, as far <laughs> as I know. So please lay it on. <laughs> no, I mean, from an animal rights activist, comparing you to a pigeon is the highest yes, praise. Exactly, I will tell you. Right. Uh, but no, I mean, you're. I, I I was telling you earlier, you're a figure in history at this point, and you've won these historic victories, and it really is just an honor, um, both because I. It's tremendous, the progress you've achieved on movements that are so important to so many people, including people I love dearly. Um, people that most of us love dearly at this point because you know, a lot of us just didn't realize yeah. how many people, even our own families, were, right. were suffering from this. 
Um, but also because, and I was saying this to you too, you just gave a talk at the Animal Liberation Conference. You have this incredibly elegant way of taking grand strategy and distilling it into a few conceptual points that people can take home so that it actually lives. You know, because a lot of times when you talk to really smart people, they're going a thousand different directions and you're like, okay, that was just way over my head. And you've really found a way to distill things into a package that ordinary people can use, which I think is crucial to social movements. And I've tried to borrow from that. Um, well, well but, thank you. I, one, of, one of the rules I didn't spout out in the conference is uh, repetition. Repetition <laughs> is one of the key rules of successful act activism. And so I've had a lot of practice uh, trying to think of how to explain things and, and then the need to repeat them. You always need to repeat. There's always new people. People need to hear things more than once. Most people need to hear something at least six and a half times before they really get it. And uh, and you you can't just feel like, well, I've I've done it, so yeah. I'm done. You know. Yeah. No. I and I think that that's absolutely right. Even for ourselves, like even when you think you've understood something, like I I was very briefly a teacher, and I know you're you're teaching too now. And I found that when you have to teach a class and repeat the same things over and over again, you start realizing you understand it. There's this marketing mantra, not that activists should borrow entirely from corporate marketing, but of the rule of seven, that people really have to hear things seven times. And I think you're right about that. But before we go too much into kind of the strategic lessons, I've just always been fascinated by your personal story and how you came to be who you are. Uh, because... You've taken some huge, huge risks, professionally, intellectually, made some predictions that people laughed at decades ago and uh, now are pretty much all in agreement with. Um, but you started from a pretty kind of normal background, right? It, it, wasn't, it doesn't sound like you went through any trauma or tumult when you're growing up. So how did you realize you wanted to be an activist coming from this upper middle class background in Pittsburgh, right? Mm -hmm. Your parents are both physicians. Uh, no, my father's a doctor. My mother, at the time, was a homemaker, went on to be a social worker. Okay. But, uh, yeah, but my dad was a doctor. Yeah, well, look, I had a very lucky upbringing, you know, loving parents, wonderful home. I was the oldest of four kids. We were all very close, you know, pushed each other's buttons, got on each other's nerves, but we remained very close. Um, had parents who put the kids first, mm. had a great community, and so on. So I lived a, a childhood of real luck and, and all of that. And I always felt empowered to dream of what I want, and I, and I was dreaming big as a kid mm -hmm. and so on. I think the thing that first really threw a wrench in it, if you want to look at it that way, it was realizing I was gay and realizing mm -hmm. um, that that was going to make it more difficult, at least, if not impossible, to do some of the things I you know, idly dreamed of as a kid. But even that I was lucky in because I never feared that I was going to lose the love of my parents or be thrown out or really? uh, ha have that kind of trauma. And I, I, never, uh, I never internalized it in the way that some people do as something wrong with me. Huh. I always saw it as something wrong with everyone else. Wow. So uh, I knew enough that at the time... It was not something I shared with people. It was something I knew I had to keep quiet. Mm -hmm. I had to figure out for myself what to do about it. Like, what does it mean to be gay? How do you live as gay? And so on. So, I, you know, I went through some stuff, but easy stuff compared to what some people go through. How, how did that happen? Because Pittsburgh is not San Francisco. I mean, this is not like West right. Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, no. So, I mean, and, and also, I mean, your parents, from what I've heard about your history, they were not activists or hippies or... 
The people no. you'd expect to be on the forefront of this radical movement for social change. Right. So. I mean, I think they did not know much about it when I did come out to them. Uh-huh. They kind of relied on some of their friends to coke coach them along and so on. But but again, there, there was never any question that they loved me. Oh. It was, they just didn't know what to make of it. And I, I, it felt sad. And I had to kind of allow them to be sad for a little while to be puzzled. Um, my mom had more of an attitude of, okay, this is it, move on. Uh-huh. My dad took longer. Hmm. But but n- in neither case was there, you know, like acting out or, or anger or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, so even the hardest thing in my life, and I, I hesitate to even think of it as hard cause I, I don't, yeah. but I guess at the time it was a thing as it, when I was growing up, um, I had a lucky version of it. Yeah. So and this is in the 1970s, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. How, how did well, you actually, parents... I, I think I knew before. Really? Even. I, 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 on some level I always knew I was gay. I just didn't know huh. what that was. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what to make of it, what it was, et cetera. It's, again, there were no role models. There was nothing. Like but, um, did you know anyone was gay when you were growing didn't up? Didn't know anyone. He didn't was know gay. a single person. No, wow. correct. So how did you? How did you? I mean, just tell me more about how you knew that you were. I mean, I guess you just know, right? It's just, well, you, it doesn't matter way. if you know someone is gay because you just are. Right. I knew I was attracted to boys. Sure, I knew, okay. you know, I, I I knew what I was thinking when I went into gym class and so sure. on. Um, <laughs> I I have this memory. I can't I can't place it exactly in terms of the year, but I remember walking to school. Um, and went the first time I was called a faggot by a oh. kid. Um, this was in you know sixth or seventh grade, wow. and he said, "He said, do you know what a faggot is?" Huh. And I said, "Yes, I do. It's a bundle of sticks, because, <laughs> because that's what my book of Japanese fairy tales said, <laughs> which again should have been proof." But um, yeah. you know, so I, I mean, I remember that. I remember dreams I had when I was a kid, and so on. Uh, so I never didn't think that. But but I will tell you something interesting. We can cut this out if it gets too long. No. But um, one of my pandemic projects was has been writing and I was doing a lot of writing and in part for one of the things I was writing, I went back and reread my diary from one particular year, uh, actually 45 years ago, 1976, the year I interned for Joe Biden. Uh And in part I was writing uh, a piece about that. 1976. Yeah. Is that around the time Tara Reid was there? It's a separate story. But at who? What? Wasn't Tara Reid there at the same time? This is the woman who accused him. Of... Oh, Anyways, uh, I don't story. think so, actually. Okay. But I didn't follow that all that closely. <laughs> uh, and yeah, no. And don't think that story held up. But um, yeah, so anyway, so I was rereading my diary. And it, was, it happened to be the year that I first had sex with a woman. Hmm. And the diary is full of all this stuff that I have so mentally rewritten in huh. the many, many years since. So wow. it was kind of an interesting pandemic experience to go back and look at the the actual text of what I was writing to myself about what I was going through and how I have truly, you know, not making it up, but truly rewritten it, yeah. in, its understanding in my own memory. So the, my memory is that I always knew I was gay, uh, yeah, as, yeah. I, as I just told you the story, <laughs> didn't have any internal drama really about it, uh-huh. thought there was something wrong with the world, et cetera, sure. et cetera. And that's mostly true. true. Yeah. But when I read the diary, there was still, there was still a surprising yeah. amount of... Um, almost debate about should I go out with so-and-so uh-huh. and pursue this path as if it were a real path for me, uh, being with uh, two different women. And you, so you did start out, even though you said you knew you were gay from the time you were a kid, yeah. but you still dated and had sex with women. So yes. explain that. I mean, for, for, especially for young people today who 
don't go through these experiences anymore. I think that's a yeah. hard thing for them to fathom. It's like one of my favorite jokes, which involved two women uh, sitting around uh, talking about uh, Leonard Bernstein, the uh -huh. conductor. And one woman says to the other, do you know I heard he's bisexual? And the other woman said, that man can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so, kind of the way you felt about yourself yeah, at the time. Uh, I'm like, you know, right, yeah. I'm gay, but that doesn't yeah. mean I can't. To have you know, a relationship with a woman. as I as I as I have a story that I do tell and think is true, although perhaps if I went back and reread the diary from 1978, I'd find out. Wait a minute, it wasn't quite that simple. Um, 1978 is the year I graduated college, went into the Peace Corps, huh. and while in the Peace Corps, as I would typically tell the story, and as I remember it now, uh, is when I quote figured out how to be gay. Huh. I began having sex with other guys in my village. So you had girlfriends before you had boyfriends. I had girlfriends before I had boyfriends. Wow, even though you knew you were yes. gay. That's amazing. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I guess, I mean, that was a common story, though, from that time yes. period, right? That, it's not, yes. It's although not as I, unusual as we might think it is it's today. It's not unusual at all, it's, and it's probably still not unusual today. Really? But um, what I will say, though, is I was never pretending. It's like mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't say to myself, okay, now I'm going to turn the corner on being gay, and, you know, I, which some people do. Because I didn't have, I wasn't, I didn't have a desire to flee from it. Hmm. Because again, I wasn't internalizing it as anything wrong with me. Huh. But on the other hand, I was willing to try something else. Um, but by the time I was in the Peace Corps in 1978, so you know, I was still only 21. Yeah. Um, I knew what I wanted, and I figured out how to pursue it, and went out and got it. Yeah. And and had sex uh, with guys. Okay. And from that point on, I. I just knew this is what I want, and okay. I have to now figure out how to do this in the United States. Yeah. So you're describing an Can we experience. go back to the pigeons? <laughs> <laughs> you describe an experience that sounds so fun, almost kind of like exploratory and curious, and but you also just shared a story that sounded kind of intense and kind of glossed over it, right? This kid come up to you, and I don't even really feel entitled to say the word, so I'll just say the F word. Oh. Um, and I'm younger than you, uh, so Ooh, I didn't... Mud's going to fly now. <laughs> <laughs> so I... But, I, I, you know, in many ways, my experience was probably more positive than yours because I grew up in the 80s and 90s, not in the 70s. And even when I grew up, and I, I think, honestly, even still today for a lot of kids in certain places in the country, you know, homophobia is very, very ever-present. And it's, it's not just, you know, we're not accepting it. It's, it's active hatred, right? Epithets. And... I can't imagine Pittsburgh was a place where you had much of a community around you supporting you and coming out. So I'm just trying to figure out why you felt that way when there's a kid. Like, so how did you approach that kid? Did you come out? You, you said you didn't come out to your classmates, right? You came out to your family yeah, first? Yeah, well, that was, you know, sixth or seventh or eighth grade. I can't okay. remember exactly, but that was right. I mean, and I wasn't ready to come out in the sense that, again, I knew I was gay in the sense that I knew I was attracted to boys and stuff, but I didn't know what gay yeah, was. I didn't yeah. have a whole, you know, ideology of what the point, and yeah, nor did I have any huge, I wasn't aching to have sex at that point. I, sure. I was whatever, yeah. 11, 12 years old. You know, I, that's, that, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's just not where I was. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I knew what I, I knew what I knew about myself, and I also didn't, feel bad about myself but I did know that it was something that people would make fun of or that there was condemnation about and so on and so that's where that was but that yeah. was you know that was quite young there was more 
closetedness, if you want to think of it that way, in high school, where you know one easily could have been dating, and and I could I could have been dating, um, and was more conscious of hiding, you know, the fact that I was gay. But at the same time, you know, I had close friends, and I had loving family, and I had other interests, and so on. So I di- it didn't it di- didn't consume me in that yeah. way. Yeah. Did I long for a love that would swoop in and mm. be the dream and love of my life? And I say love, not sex. It wasn't sex. It was yeah. passion, love. And I, I, you know, when I was seventeen, in my in that same diary, I wrote huge, huge, passionate. Mm. Uh, you know, entries about finding love, mm-hmm. wanting to find love. When I had a crush on one kid and we developed this extremely close friendship in high school and to the point where other people were, I think, were kind of looking at it and wondering, um, it, it was a huge platonic mm-hmm. love relationship, but it turned out he wasn't gay. And so when when we eventually when it came to a head, mm-hmm. um, we quote broke up hmm. and I came to the table weeping and stuff mm-hmm. in, 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 at home. And my parents were, you know, puzzled. what's going on puzzled. Yeah. And they probably were thinking, is, is there something between him and so-and-so, yeah. you know, but, um, I wasn't ready to discuss it that way other than to discuss it as a friendship. Yeah. Um, and it, and, it, and it basically was a friendship, but it was, you know, a very charged, emotional friendship. So did you but come then, out to but him then? But then just come out to him. Did you come out to him? Is that what led I don't, to this We, we wrote, we wrote kind of, we were writing letters to each other all okay. the time. It was a very intense, passionate, intellectual, uh, emotional friendship that on both sides. Yeah. But when it crossed the line into a declaration of love, uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't remember the words now. I, I probably have it in some file, but I haven't looked at that. Um, that was a, a, he wasn't going to go there because that's not he because he wasn't gay. Yeah, yeah. And I, that happened twice in high school. I think that happens to a lot of young people who are exploring romance and yes. attraction, and because the the written word feels so much safer, and and, and especially when. Before social media, where before it wasn't, the internet, before yeah. the internet, I mean, yeah, there was like you, a sense you of wrote safety letters and privacy. To each other. Exactly, you did, and, and poetry. Of, I wrote poetry. Yeah, and, absolutely. I, I remember there was a, I, I have my own sordid history of relationships, and you know, I, I didn't start dating until I was like twenty eight years old. I was a virgin until I'm in my thirties. Very embarrassing, but I'm. I, I shouldn't even say it's embarrassing because it's just it's the wrong way to think about this. But I um, got beat up a lot in school. Hmm. Did not really like physical touch for a long time, um, but still had this, you know, like I think all human beings and probably all mammals, this longing for physical contact and mm-hmm. companionship, intimacy, and and the only way it manifested was like sending random letters to people, mm-hmm. right? And and there was a genuinely <laughs> random letters, not random. I mean, I, I think they're random in the sense that, like, there is one girl at my church who, probably to this day, she doesn't even know I was attracted to her, and I. I was too timid to actually say something about attraction. It was just, I wanted to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Just, why are you writing all these long right. letters and then eventually emails once emails came out? Um, and I don't think she ever really knew. And, and if she's listening to this podcast, it might be the first time she does know. <laughs> but it was, it was kind of an exploration of my own identity and feelings and attraction that felt like it was possible and safe in a world before the internet, before Instagram, mm-hmm. uh, in a world before kind of, I think the... The kids today, I just I feel like everything they're doing is being so scrutinized. Yeah, and it's and 
not that there weren't social dynamics when we were growing up too. Right. I mean, we but, we lived with the version of what we lived. We you know we didn't yeah. have the internet, so we didn't know how obtrusive that could be. For sure. Uh, but we 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 I we still felt like we were under other people's eyes. And, we did. And, and scrutiny. We had to write letters and pad. Yep, but yep. but but you're right. We were able to do it. I think another difference today is that in part because of the the progress we've made, including the marriage work, but not only. Um, people are much more aware of gayness. People are much more aware of their own and others and much more on the look for it. Yeah. So there, there is less space to hide, if you will. Yeah, yeah, Not yeah. that there's none, but it, it is a different world with different expectations, and that has, you know, you could say pros and cons. Yeah. Tell me about coming out to your parents. This was in high school? No. I did have that crying episode, but they didn't... They, they didn't realize it. I oh, I think they did, they did. and then oh. suppressed it. Really? But they... Wait, what, why do you think that? Because when I did come out to them, uh-huh. which they was said, oh, many, many years that. later, that was like a coming out. And <laughs> sure. I, I was saying, don't you remember? <laughs> um, and they were, well, yeah, but, you know. Well. Sure. You know so it, it, people believe what they want to believe. People uh-huh, adjust uh-huh. and so on. And again, it was never at the level of giant accusatory drama. It was just they were genuinely trying to figure it out and puzzle and maybe not wanting to go there unless they had to go there and so on. And I didn't force them to go there back in high school. So when I did come out to them, this was during law school, actually. Wow. Okay. Uh, So I was 25, I guess, Uh when I came out to my parents. Now, I'd already been in the Peace Corps, so I'd already come out to myself. Mm -hmm. I'd already had sex. I already come back. I already begun dating, figuring now. I spent law school basically trying to figure out how to have a relationship with a guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, incidentally, did some law. Um, (laughs) And uh, had my first boyfriend, and then my second boyfriend, and so on. I'm glad Harvard treated you well. (laughs) You use your Harvard education I can't give all the credit to Harvard, but... (laughs) It, it worked out and came out and uh-huh. came out in, you know, sort of concentric circles to close friends and then friends and classmates. And, you know, I was out to pretty much everybody and then flew home to have the conversation with my parents and, okay. and family. And, and I told, my, um, told two of my siblings or one of my siblings first, then told my parents and then told the other two. And, um, and actually everybody was fine. Really? With gradations, you know, you know, the overriding reaction of my parents, and more so my dad than my mom, was sadness, and sadness that it was going to be hard for me, hmm. you know, not anger, not how dare you, but more concern about AIDS, concern about safety, sure. concern about, I think also, you know, just not having the life they had envisioned I was going to have, and you know, grandchildren, and da da da, you know, and I, I can't blame them for that. Yeah. I, I totally accepted that that was a logical and reasonable reaction for them. Especially since you're probably like the star of the family. I mean, you're a Harvard Law School student, you go to the Peace Corps, they must be thinking, oh my gosh, Evan is, well, yeah. you know, firstborn son, he's right. going to go First on to do these great things for us. You know, exactly. Blah, blah. They're thinking yes. all these things and yes. then you shatter all their hopes yes, exactly. by saying, by the way, right. I'm gay in yes. the middle of a pandemic yes. that's My killing. brother was thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> he gets the He got the primogenitor. Uh, the inheritance, right. yeah. Right. Um, yeah, no. And actually, the brother who I'm, I'm joking about is my. There's me, my sister, then this brother, and then uh-huh. the, the younger brother. And the one I was most concerned about, not overly, but a little concerned, was this second, the the, the brother, huh. my 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 next brother, who is the most conservative of the family. Huh. Not not politically conservative, but just sort of the most conventional. We used to joke he was the Marilyn Munster of the family. You know the the the, the normal one. Sure. Um, 
And sure enough, he actually went on to uh, live in the house that we all grew up in. He bought, you know, he bought that huh. house. He's the first one to get married, the first one to have kids. Uh, he, he took, he joined my father in the medical practice, now huh. runs the practice and so on. Huh. He, he is the most quote unquote conventional. And I was a little worried about he, how he was going to handle it, but he was wonderful as were, you mm. know, as were all my siblings and, and, and my parents really. What do you attribute that to? Because I, that wasn't consistent with the culture of the time, right? Well, like I, in 1983 I, or 1982. Well, it wasn't a virulent culture okay. uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, and okay. it wasn't a virulent culture in Jewish liberal Jewish circles, circles, okay. and non overly religious and educate. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of those kinds of demographic structural, urban. You know, da, da, da. Um, although I hasten to add that people can have all kinds of different experiences, no matter sure. where they live, including even in the same family. Yeah. You know, so for example, my sister, who I'm very close with and always was, and she was the first one I told uh, in the family, <clears throat> well, it was totally supportive. Mm -hmm. We all kind of thought and increasingly came to think she's gay, hmm. but she denied it for years, long after I had come out, long after the family had all sort of become proud of my being gay and activism and gone to things and da, 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 da. And she wasn't lying. She just had her own journey until eventually she, on her own terms, could come to terms with who she was and being gay. And she's now married to a woman and happy. Wow, so happy you were right so, about it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What, but, what did you, what, what made you think that she was gay? She had never really dated. She okay. had, I mean, all the typical, she seemed more woman identified. She, she uh -huh. likes sports. Okay. You know, I mean, it's all this stuff. But mostly, I, I know her. You you know, just know I just her. know her. Okay. Um, but my, my point, though, is that even in the same family, even in a supportive family, even in where someone who has, quote, no excuse, you know, she had just seen her brother come out with no bad repercussions, uh -huh. was proud of it, she still had her own journey to go through. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I'm, very, I'm just very mindful of that, that that's true individually and it's true societally. We've made all this enormous progress and it takes nothing away from the reality mm -hmm. of that progress to also acknowledge there's more we need to do and it always comes down to the individual, yeah. not just the categorical or the historical. No, absolutely. Know. Yeah, every individual's unique and has their own complexities and challenges. Right. So what did, what did your mom and dad say? I mean, you said your dad seemed a little more uncomfortable or at least... Yeah, well, they, they expressed this, you know, the, the, a little bit of fear of AIDS, a little bit of... By the way, did you plan for this? Was this it something you wrote something down? I know, I planned, I thought about... Yeah, no, I thought about how I was going to say it. I said, okay. Mom and Dad, there's something I want to tell you. you did know, you okay. practice? I don't think I practiced, <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm very verbal. Yeah, so, you don't need to practice. Um, right. Anyone I, who talks I, to Evan sees Probably it. semi. Evan doesn't need a lot of practice to speak to people. But I, you know, but I bought them a book. Uh -huh. uh, you know, I forgot what it was called now. It'll it come to me. But it was it was the then book of the time about, huh. you know, what does it mean when your child Sounds is gay? gay. That kind okay. of um, and appointed them to resources like PFLAG and sure. so on. Parents and friends of lesbians and gays, and uh, said, you know, I'm ready to talk whenever you want to talk. And da da da. What I what I always remembered from the conversation was I at one point said someday to my father. I said someday you'll celebrate the fact that I'm gay. Hmm. You will, you will be, you know, be, be proud of it and you will, you will not have any of these fears and you'll see I have love and, you know, and the world is better and da, da, da. And he said, I, I, you know, I, I love you. I accept it. I will accept it, but I, I'll never celebrate it. Oh, wow. And I and flash forward to thoughts of, you know, him at my wedding. Yeah. They came to the Supreme Court when I argued at the Supreme Court. 
when I call home, he, he's dead now, but a few years ago, you know, even up to a few years ago, when I would call home, he'd be the one to say, you know, I saw in the paper that da da da, da or we were having this discussion with friend X, friend Y, friend Z, and so on, so you know, and I always wanted to say, you see that? I told, <laughs> I told you, you so. I told you. <laughs> Did he ever admit it to you? No. Did he say, you were right? Of yeah, course. you were totally right. <laughs> I am proud. He, he, I got the big. You're, I got the big point. So that, that's the thing. That you were very fond of making bold predictions, aren't you? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> to, yeah. to say to your father in nineteen, this is nineteen eighty three, probably that, that was nineteen eighty two. Nineteen eighty two conversation to predict to your father, you're going to be proud someday that yeah. I'm gay celebrate. at a time you're going to celebrate when we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> you've got an ascendant right wing administration, the moral majority, the Christian right coming forward and and demonizing gay people. I mean. Like Cardinal O'Connor basically blaming AIDS on gay people and saying they deserve yes. what they're getting. I mean, this is this is a bad time to come out. And you're saying, by the way, you're going to be proud of this. Well, <laughs> you know, I, as I said earlier today uh, at the conference, I, I'm, I'm lucky just temperamentally that is how I am. I have that very forward-looking, very hopeful, that ability to compartmentalize a little bit, the ability to tune yeah. out uh, some of the too. bad stuff and keep my eyes on the prize. And uh, it's sincere. It's not. It's not yeah, just yeah. instrumental. It's not. Oh, I can uh, tell. Yeah. But it is also instrumental because I also believe that one way to make things better, and particularly if you want to lead and you want to bring others around and give and help create space for others, is you need to convey trust that they can get there, yep. hope that it will succeed, um, feasibility, attainability, and so on. If you spend all your time saying it won't happen, or depressing it, or making it bad, or wallowing the negative. You're, you're excusing inaction or bad action as opposed to making room for the, the action that you want. Yeah. So I, I, I am lucky in that it is also the sincere way I approach my work and I try to approach my life with degrees of cantankerousness and grumpiness mm -hmm. and so on. But, um, but it is definitely something I try to bring to the to activism and yeah. to creating and, space and for others. You're absolutely right. And this is something that sociologists who study social movements have pointed out. I don't know if you're familiar with Doug McAdams' work. I am familiar with the name. Yeah, Doug, <clears throat> Doug is a great guy. And he was an activist himself. And I think some of the best academics who study social movements were activists, at least at some point in their lives. But he was an anti-war activist. Mm -hmm. who, you know, I think he was not one of the early people to get arrested for protesting the draft. But I think he did get arrested at some point. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to become a sociologist and now is at Stanford, one of the most distinguished sociologists. But he has this concept called cognitive liberation. And basically has two pieces, both of which I'm sure you'll be very sympathetic to. One is... You have to create a collective sense of grievance. If there's something deeply unjust about the world you live in. But second, you also have to create a sense of collective power mm -hmm. that we're going to change this. Right. And when you have those two ingredients, that's when people are freed, not just from the injustices of the world around them, but the chains they're personally trapped by in their right. own mind. They, right. There's a cognitive liberation that comes from that. And when you hit that switch collectively, that's when action becomes not just something people want to do, but they almost feel like they have to do it. Mm. It's like, I have to be a part of this. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing when you get to that point, and you've captured that so well with the yeah. work you've done for decades now. Well, I, I sometimes say, you know, if we had to boil down our success to three words, uh -huh. the three words would be hope, clarity, and tenacity. Huh. Tenacity because change takes time. time it, yeah. You know, you don't win every battle. It takes time. You have a heavy lift. You have a lot of things to move, particularly big change, transformational change. So you have to stick with it. You have yeah. to ride it out. You have to get through the ups and downs, and you have to expect disappointments and bad days. Clarity, meaning, as we talked about a little earlier, 
clarity in your goal, clarity in your strategy, clarity in what I call the vehicles, the programs, the methodologies, the actions, the resources that are needed to mm -hmm. achieve, fulfill your strategy, and clarity in action steps. What are you suggesting to other people they can do? What are you, how are you empowering others to bring a piece to the work? And I call that the ladder of clarity. Yeah. So you need this clarity uh, to have a pathway and to be able to sustain momentum on it. But it begins with hope. Mm -hmm. You have to believe change can happen. You have to trust that a critical mass of others, not every, but enough, can move. Mm -hmm. you ha and you have to encourage them to think that. You have to give them permission to do better. Yeah. I think those are such important words right now because if you look at the levels of depression and anxiety among young people, I, I was just talking to Evan about how inspired I am by the activism I'm seeing among young people. What makes me concerned is that the amount of depression and anxiety and pessimism. Mm. And, and this is something that has dramatically changed in the last even five years. And this isn't just the pandemic, because I think the nadir for levels of anxiety and depression among people in the age of 25 was something like 2017, you know? And, and I don't think this is entirely because of Trump. Trump probably played a little bit of a role for some folks in feeling like our system is failing us, but there's something else going on. So I'm wondering for someone who is concerned about the injustices in the world, but feels much less optimistic than you felt in 1983, you attributed your optimism to temperament, but is there anything we can do to get to a place where we feel more confident and optimistic about the prospects for change? Yeah, it's, it, it is an only temperament. I had temperament, I had the, I had the luck of having the temperament and had that from an early age. And, and again, don't get me wrong, I can be cranky, I can be moody, I can be irritable, I can be grumpy and all that. It's not like going around singing and being a, a constant ray of sunshine. But inner word, I, I have that, that ability to be forward-looking, to, be, yeah. to believe, to, to keep going forward and to tune out the stuff that gets in my way if I have to. But the other thing that I had from an early age, and again, I feel lucky in this, but it, it is definitely a source of inspiration and sustenance and instruction for what you're talking about is history. Hmm. I think people do better to learn history, to study history, to learn from the experience of others, to see that you're not alone. You're not the first one to go through this. You're not yeah. the only one going through this. Uh, it, some of it is inherent in life and in nature and in human affairs, and others are passages that will be transcended, and others are problems that we can learn to overcome and that others had to learn to overcome or put up with. Hmm as they went through. It's not like, you know, Martin Luther King or FDR whistled sunshine all the day, live long day. I mean, they were also depressed and or unhappy or challenged or so on. And yet they found the strength and the ability to get move forward. And if they can do it, we can take lessons from that and inspiration for that and do it too. So I find great inspiration and instruction, as well as a sense of inheritance, a sense of obligation mm -hmm. and need to be part of it um, from learning history. And one way to learn history, of course, is to read or watch or, um, you know, immerse yourself in it, study it. Yeah. Another way is to travel, expose yourself to it, go find things out, learn from other people and allow yourself to tune out of where you immediately are and look at a bigger picture because it can make you feel a lot better and a lot more empowered. Yeah. And then come back and look for the pathway. Don't dwell on the problem, dwell on the pathway. Were there any particular stories or books that really inspired you as a kid to get that sense of optimism and the place that your movement, the gay rights movement, could eventually take in history that you'd suggest others read or take oh, a look at? I mean, you know, all the history, just tons of history of 
whether it's Lincoln and what mm -hmm. he went through, including Lincoln's own writings. Read, reading Lincoln is mm. deeply inspiring, uh, both because of who he was and how a person with you know none of the advantages I had in terms of schooling and yeah. stable home life and da da da. Yeah, he was uh, a pretty poor kid, right? Oh, desperate poverty and having to work hard labor from you know early age, and his his mother died young, and his mm -hmm. father remarried. Fortunately, the second wife was a mother to him and he was always very grateful for that but he wasn't so close with his father he wrote you know wanted to get out as soon as he could he never liked the manual labor not that he was lazy but he just that's not what he wanted to be doing he didn't like the sort of the mores of the time in which he was living and he kind of saw himself on a bigger stage and he daydreamed and but he also had no or virtually no formal education and becomes the greatest writer of all the presidents yeah. and, you know, of almost anyone in the English language and not just writing beautiful words, but incredible thoughts. Yeah. So, so, you know, I read a lot about him, read a lot of him. Uh, you could say the same thing, not, not the exact same thing, but I, I took similar kinds of inspiration reading, uh, the stories of the new deal and the, mm. uh, political struggles to, uh, get our society to be more equal, the, the civil rights struggle, reading about King, reading about Thurgood Marshall, reading about Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many inspiring people to look at. Uh, you just pick any of them and you will find yourself moved. I just finished reading the other day uh, uh, my second giant biography of uh, Frederick Douglass. And at first I wasn't even going to read it because I kind of thought, all right, I already know his life. I already, yeah. I already read this other big one. Uh, but there's a new one that's kind of acclaimed, so I thought, all right, I'll, you know, I'm going to check it out. Found myself completely, yeah. again, moved by it and so on. My close group of friends and I get together uh, several times a year, at least prior to the pandemic. We now have started, thank God, getting to do it again. This is my college roommate circle and spouses and so on, and we just have remained extremely close over the decades. Uh, on our last get-together in D.C., we all went out to Cedar Hill, Frederick Douglass's house, mm. and toured that together. Wow. Just doing things like that just puts you in a, yeah. another yeah, person's great. shoes, another person's place, somebody who went through, let's just say, other difficult stuff, <laughs> and uh, found a way forward, a way to make their mark in history. And you also learn that they were not perfect, yeah. that they had their domestic squabbles, they had troubles with their kids, they had... Um, frustrations over how other people were treating them. Frederick Douglass, this great giant of the 19th century, this towering figure, perhaps the most famous African-American of the 19th century, by the end of his life is both regarded as this historical figure, as you're mm -hmm. so kindly lauding me with. And at the same time, he's writing frustration at all the younger activists mm -hmm of his day who are saying the old man is just, you know, in the way <laughs> he's you know, I'm up. tired of him. Yeah, yeah, why, yeah, yeah. He, who does he think he is? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. So it's like, I, I, I remember a few years ago reading a book about the women's suffrage movement uh -huh. and um, their struggles and so on. And I felt like I was reading the committee meetings <laughs> of the, the week I had last week because really? the same arguments <laughs> yeah. they were having. And yet they went on to victory. Yeah. Um, uh, although it is also true that most of them did not live to see it, yeah. you know, but the next generation did. So when you all of that kind of stuff and all those layers of history uh, giving you those lessons and inspiration, I think, can give you a sense of perspective that you then should turn into hope and move forward. Yeah, that is, that is so important for people here, and I think especially young people, because right now on social media, and, and partly just because of the structure of human psychology, negativity is everywhere. 
all we're hearing about is some scumbag who did this and R. Kelly that and, you know, this racist on Twitter and that racist on Instagram. And we're not hearing the inspiring stories. And it's, I mean, it's a little cliched and I know he's a white guy, so maybe I shouldn't be lauding him that much. But I was actually at the Lincoln Memorial very recently. Mm -hmm. You know, I was on the East Coast and I did a podcast with Brianna Joy Gray, who's amazing, by the way. She's Bernie Sanders press secretary, doing really extraordinary work, rethinking the left and rethinking identity politics, too. But I totally forgot what you said, that Lincoln was just an inspiring writer. Because at the Lincoln Memorial, they mm-hmm. had the Gettysburg Address right. on one side. And yeah. honestly, and it's, it's really the, embarrassing. And it's the other wall that counts. Yeah, yes, but I exactly. don't even know what was written on the other wall, but right. that was even more beautiful. The Second Inaugural Address. I actually did address. not. Second yeah. Inaugural Address. Mm-hmm. The Gettysburg Address honestly didn't impress me. I was like, yeah, that's oh, pretty no, cool. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's but, good, but it was yeah. the other wall that yes. I don't even remember exactly what it was, but it almost brought me to Second tears. Second Inaugural Address. I was, I was reading it and just... If God was wills that every drop of blood drawn yeah, by the bondsman so lash now be repaid pain. by the the blood of the sword. It was it was so inspiring. Yeah, and it's a great speech. And Frederick Douglass, too. Like When you read his autobiography, right. I read it when I was 16, 17 years old, and now I'm going to reread one. it. But it's, it's so intense, the struggles they go through. Yeah. But ultimately, you see that it's worth it. Yeah, you know, it's worth it because there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And in a time where so many of us are feeling so scared about what happened with Trump and the Capitol riots and mm. democracy, it's so important for us to also see that, hey, if we stick at this, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and also your your fears, your frustrations, your uh, negativity, your anger are not unique. Yeah, I mean, I've, other, other people, people also had them and yeah. yet also found a way to get through it. Not not to deny the... I mean, there are reasons to be negative and to be afraid and to be upset and so on. And it's okay to do that some, but it's not okay to wallow in it. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it, I just think having that perspective and being able to draw from others instead of having to do it all on your own yeah. is a, a thing that history gives you. And it doesn't have to be the super heavy history. If you're not hugely into politics, read the story of Helen Keller or mm-hmm. read, you know, read the story of, of, of a writer who overcame. I, one of my favorite biographies is a biography of Isak Dinesen, the woman who mm-hmm. wrote Out of Africa mm-hmm. and several other great stories. And her life story is just incredible. Reading, reading her life story as this writer who went to live in Africa for decades and then lost the farm and lost all of that. And reading her letters and so on, you know, that that wouldn't be for everybody, Mm -hmm. but it just immerses you in somebody else in a way that takes you out of your own misery and lets you remind this great historical lesson of, you know, this too shall pass, Mm -hmm. you can move forward, bring your mark, it's not over, tomorrow is another day, all these cliches that turn out to be true. And if all of that fails, it's also good for people to remember the advice that Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave when Mm -hmm. she was asked the secret of her very long and happy marriage. And she said, the real secret is to be a little deaf, Hmm. to tune some of it out. (laughs) So how do we do that at scale? Because I listen to your advice and I think right now the ecosystems people are living in are very much directing people in the opposite direction at scale. And the obvious example is just social media, right? Where we know there's enormous negativity bias. The Wall Street Journal actually just did this incredible investigation of Facebook's internal research, finding that their algorithms are directing people towards negative, sure. angry content because mm-hmm. that content draws you back in. And you know, as someone who studied and taught social science, I can tell you there's this concept called loss aversion that Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize in economics for identifying. And there's a, a lot of complication to it, but you can basically summarize it by saying 
negative stimuli are about twice as effective at drawing people's attention than positive stimuli. And that's true across the board. Pain is more effective than pleasure. Losing money hurts a lot more than gaining money. Mm. And right now we live in a world where all that attention is being monetized by huge tech companies and media companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, young women are developing body image problems. Mm -hmm. People are becoming depressed. They're only seeing negative things on social media and it's leading more people to kill themselves than I think at any point in American history in terms of our total suicide rate. So I, what do you, how do you suggest, is there a way to do this at scale to make people look at that hopeful story in addition to the person who's racist on Twitter? Well, the way to do things at scale is through getting engaged, getting mm -hmm. engaged in politics. You know, we need we need the government to regulate and perhaps break up some of these companies and to um, channel some of uh, reduce some of the incentives that they've built in by making them illegal or making them pay for them yeah. uh, in a way that will change the uh, the way the business operates and maybe mitigate some of the negative effects. So if you feel if you're feeling all the anger and frustration and concern you're saying, instead of spending all our time talking about how bad social media is, go elect a candidate. Yeah. Go go pressure uh, the Senate to enact antitrust laws, et cetera. Encourage Biden, who's been appointing very strong yeah. uh, members to the you know the FTC and so on. Uh, to do that, you know, we can take action it, and it's slow and hard and messy and difficult, but there is talk about it in a way that there wasn't five years ago. And so political engagement to get people elected is a huge thing to do rather than spending all your time worrying about the thing that you alone are not going to be able to change. You're not going to regulate yeah. Facebook, but you can be a citizen slash campaigner slash voter who helps pressure uh, changes and regulations and so on to occur. Yeah. So that's one part of the answer and probably the more important part. But the other thing that you can also do is turn it off. Yeah. Don't, I mean, now I know it's easy to say, get off Facebook or get off Twitter. And I have not. Um, and, and even though I sometimes think I should and so on, but I don't spend all day on it. I yeah. don't, I don't let it dominate my, uh, time. And we all can do that. You know, when, during the pandemic, my husband and I, when like everybody, we were all cooped up and so on, we got to the point where we sort of said, you know, we should just start watching less TV. Huh. We need, and it's not that I don't think MSNBC is interesting and good, and I like a lot of the people. I've been on most of the shows. I, you know, I, I generally agree with their coverage. But it was just getting to be too much. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not saying don't be informed. I'm not sure. saying don't follow the news. I'm not saying don't watch anything. But you don't have to wallow in it. You don't have to watch it all the time. So that is something we all can do. And I know, again, it's a lot easier to say that. It's, you know, it's like, don't eat that extra piece of pizza. And so, you know, yeah. it, it's, it is hard, but it is, you can do it. Yeah. So that is also part of the equation. Take care of yourself. If you find yourself spiraling into a place of negativity, do something to break that, including just getting up and walking away from it. Turn it off. Go do something else. Go talk with someone else. Go be with someone else. Think about something else. Yeah. Well, I mean, many and ways. Then, and then get political. Yeah. In many ways, you're a perfect person to discuss this because that was kind of the state you were in in the 1980s. And I don't even mean you specifically. I meant the movement. You know, with the AIDS crisis, I think the number that I read was one in nine gay people in the United States ended up being becoming infected in HIV in the 80s and 90s. Is that, does that sound right to you? I don't recall that number, but that doesn't mean you're wrong. Oh, I just, okay. you know, now old enough that I don't remember it. It was like one I in just, 15. I just lived through it. But um, so yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it was pervasive and scary. And it was also, unlike this pandemic, now mm -hmm. I get to have lived through two pandemics, mm -hmm. um, 
that was a pandemic that was happening in the midst of everybody else thinking everything this else was fine. fine. Yeah. At least this pandemic we're all sharing. Yeah, that's um, true. That must have been creepy. It, it was terrible. Yeah. It was terrible. You know, we were at war. We, uh-huh. we felt in a set, set uh, siege of war, and we'd be walking down the streets or chatting with friends who, yeah. you know, had no idea, as, as you were saying. When you, when you started identifying as gay and realized you were gay, was AIDS already a problem that was... Well, when I first, as as we discussed, I was aware I was gay before, before AIDS, quote unquote. Um, But when I first got involved, when I first got in the movement, that was the dawn, that was already the dawn of the AIDS movement. AIDS is like 1981. AIDS, yeah, AIDS basically comes into public consciousness very slowly, starting in 81, then 82, Mm -hmm. 83. By 83, it was very hot and big and scary and pervasive and in the political dynamic and having political effects. That's the year I wrote my paper and the year I graduated law school and the year I moved to New York Mm -hmm. and the year I began volunteering at Lambda Legal and the year I became a a full-time, well, at that point, a part-time activist. Did you know anyone who had AIDS in the early 80s? You did? Of course. At Harvard? Not only did I know people, my second boyfriend had AIDS relatively early on and died. Oh my and God. several of the guys I slept with had AIDS and died. Wow. And friends and, you know, the ACT UP and GMHC groups that I was yeah. friendly with and partly involved with, uh, you know, were plenty of people with AIDS. Yeah. And I know many of the people who died. Uh, every gay person. So of, your second of my boyfriend age, yes. had AIDS and died. Yes. Did he die in the 80s around the he same time in, that you were doing Died in this? the 80s, yeah. Wow. Late 80s. How, I mean, how do you respond to that? Like, it's. It was terrible. Yeah. It was terrible. But my response is to fight. To fight, yeah. You know, as was the overall response of the movement. To Well, and fight, you know, fight, again, as I said earlier, we, when we think of activism, sometimes we go to this very glamorous issue of I- image of fighting, you know, being yeah. on the barricades, protesting, wearing a T-shirt. And those are absolutely elements of activism and play their part. But people organized, people created institutions, people created self-help networks, people created support services, people created lobbying. You know, all yeah. those less glamorous elements of organizing and activism are as Absolutely. important yeah. as direct action. For sure. How did, how did he find out that he had AIDS and did he tell you and how, how did that even go? I mean, he, that, he told me. He told I mean, we had, we had already broken up, but broken we were up. still friendly. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, he told me, and I, you know, I knew his parents, and I knew him, and he got sicker and sicker, and you know, oh. I would go to visit him. I remember the last time I saw him, he was at home and dying, oh, gosh. Uh, and you know, kind of wasting away, and uh, was in a in bed, and I got into bed with him and just kind of cuddled him, mm. not not sex, but cuddled, and you know, in my mind was, you know. I, I know this is safe, but is it safe? You know, mm. is it no? What about but sweat? What about that? Yeah. So, you know, there was nervousness, but I just also wanted to give him that physical Some comfort, yeah. uh, comfort and clothes. But, you know, but, but I remember it to this day. It was a moment that I, I remember it. And, and that was, you know, by no means unique. Yeah. This is how we were all living at that time. Yeah. Was this a Harvard student? No, he was just yeah, someone that, that was after Harvard. After Harvard. Okay. Yeah. I think it's just, it's hard for folks, including me, who didn't live through that to understand. And I just got kind of the, the tail end of it because I was born in 1981, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. just when this was starting. Right. But I'm sure you remember the name Ryan White. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I knew Ryan. I mean, I you met, knew Ryan. I wow. met him. I didn't okay. Know. But, you know, back then, the fear over this was so great mm-hmm. that it, by the late 80s and 90s, I mean, if you thought someone might be gay, you were kind of physically afraid to be near them. Mm. 
you know? I remember like... Well, some people. I mean... In Indiana, we were, for sure. Uh-huh, right. This is... And Ryan White was from yeah. Indiana. I grew up in central sure. Indiana. Mm-hmm. And there was an enormous amount of prejudice. And honestly, I was part of it. I mean, I... It just... I didn't know anyone right. who felt any differently. And it was just... So using the F word and just... Right. You know, but I remember there was this kid in my high school who... I don't even know if he ended up being gay, but he just acted a little unfeminine. He, mm-hmm. For all I know, he wasn't gay. But with this epidemic raging all over the country and all this media attention about people dying and then all the demonization too, you know, all the media figures, including Reagan himself, right. and, you know, major figures in religion like Cardinal Connor. When the rumor got around our school that this kid might be gay. And again, I think it was probably bullshit. I don't mm-hmm. even know if it was true. Mm-hmm. Like people were actually physically a little scared. I was scared mm-hmm. to be near him. Yeah. Based on nothing. Yeah. Based well, on nothing. And you know, it was, it, yeah, it was, it's so weird. And like, we think about conspiracy theories today, and obviously there are a lot of them that are pretty terrifying and absurd, but back then it was also very powerful and shaped people's behavior and beliefs in ways that were incredibly insidious. And I don't know how you all overcame it, but you did. Yeah. It's incredible. Well, well it's, it's really the inverse of what exactly you're, uh, of what you're rightly describing, which is people can also rise to goodness. People can be yeah. encouraged. People be, can be given permission to be their better selves. And that's, you know, a huge part of the work of activism and a huge part of the work of living a good life is trying to help others to be, be the better ones they can be. We all can be kind of bad and we all can be kind of good. Yeah. Or, you know, at least most of us can be most. So, um, you want to give people permission, including yourself, to do better, to yeah. be good. And there, you know, there are all these different techniques and things. We talked about some of them and so on. Leadership is important. Political voice is important. Setting a good example. Arresting groupthink. Yeah. Uh, personal stories. Ryan White's coming out. Mm-hmm. While it exposed him and his family to you know, some real ugliness, it also it changed you know, tons of people's hearts and minds. And of course, for every Ryan White, there were you know, gay people who were doing the same thing. Um, and that's how we, you know, change it. We, we, we didn't take the American people's initial response, particularly as mediated and misdirected by the Reagans and mm-hmm. Jerry Falwell's and so on of the world as the only answer. Right. As the, yeah. you, know, you, you have to learn not to take no for an answer. For sure. And you have to help other people get to yes. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know who Ryan White was, because, you know, it's, this is now, what, 30, 30 years ago. He was a kid who got AIDS, I think, who blood transfusion yeah, he right was yeah mm-hmm. but again back then if if you had aids it was right. the mark of cain no one yeah. wanted to be around you they were yeah. terrified they I mean, kicked him out of school yeah it, yeah. Was, it was just awful what he went right. through and it, it's weird because on the one hand it's it's kind of messed up that it took like a straight white kid to get consciousness moving in that direction on the other hand it did kind of open things up a little bit right it's i mean the fact that it was this vulnerable kid who otherwise seemed totally normal who got AIDS made people more open, I think, to the story that folks from from your community were telling too. Yeah, which it, is I think no, important. it absolutely did. I mean, it, it also offered opportunities for some, in, particularly in the Reagan administration, to do you know play mischief with innocent victims versus you know others, yeah, yeah. and gays, of course, were the yeah. others, uh, as were drug users by yeah. their by their definition. But it but it also created space and opportunity and allowed people some people to move, and we could move forward on that and so on. And you know, Ryan White wasn't he wasn't the beginning of the turnaround, and For he sure. wasn't the end, but. But he and his mother, particularly, um, played a hugely important role in yeah. the story, as did you know many others who came forward with bravery. And I think a huge part of how we 
changed things on gay rights and how we won the freedom to marry mm-hmm. was AIDS. Hmm. You know, terrible as it was, and of course, AIDS is not over either. Sure, um, but we AIDS shattered the silence about huh. gay people's lives, including in the way you're describing sure. growing up in Indiana. In some part, in some ways, bad, but in some ways, ultimately good. It forced non-gay Americans to have a different look and a different conversation about gay people that began in an ugly and shaky way, but that also then opened their eyes to the bravery gay people showed, Mm -hmm. the caring gay people showed, gay people being there for their loved ones, their partners grieving for others when they had been told gays are incapable of love, incapable of real relationships, and here were these people going to superhuman lengths to, to deal with oppression and exclusion and discrimination and a disease to to tend to their loved ones and to fight for justice and fight for compassion and so on. And it, it allowed Americans to see something they hadn't seen before. Yeah. And hearts and minds began to change and, and open. Yeah, still to this day, I think one of the greatest movies that's ever been made is Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. It's such a good movie. And if you yeah. haven't seen it, really, just right. go watch it. And again, the there was criticism there, too, mm-hmm. of you know, having the hero sure, yeah. be you know, a non-gay person mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. comes in and rescues the lawyer. Sure. But it worked, and it worked uh, very, you know, as you say, very effectively. And that goes to what we talked about earlier today, the, the power of storytelling, mm-hmm. the power of making it personal, the power of finding messengers, the power of repetition. These are all important elements of persuasion. And they, again, prove that people can be moved from a very ugly place, even with the noise from the likes of the Reagan administration and the Jerry Falwells and the religious right and the Cardinal O'Connors and so on, who Mm -hmm. were, you know, these voices of tremendous authority who ultimately lost on this question to the the dispossessed Mm -hmm. and vulnerable because we did the work and enough people are capable of rising. Yeah. I, I want to get to the central line of work that you're known for, gay marriage, in a bit. But I want to ask one last question about this. What was it like just to date in that time period? In I mean, the 80s? Yeah. I mean, what was that experience like? That must have been hard. Is, I mean, maybe hard is being it, a little... Isn't dating always hard? Yeah, I guess dating is <laughs> always hard. But that, I mean, just what was it like to, I mean, to try and find love at a time period where love was literally physically dangerous yeah. and... and People are propagating this mythology that was making it even more scary, there right? Is, there was obviously no one answer to that, and all kinds of people had all kinds of different responses and mm-hmm. uh, approaches. But I, but I will say I was very active during that period trying oh. to find a boyfriend, trying to uh, find love, and also trying, you know, trying to have sex. But uh, I wanted a boyfriend. Uh-huh. Uh, I was whinily single through much of that period. <laughs> um, but... Um, there was always the fear. There was always that hanging over you, but it didn't stop us. It didn't, yeah. it, it didn't stop me. And I think that's true of most of us. You know, there's a TV show f- a few months ago, maybe a year ago, I've lost track during the pandemic, a British series about the, the AIDS period. I forgot what it's called. You can look it up later, but huh. they just, it was just within the last year. Okay. And they have the, they follow these characters through their sort of rise and fall during AIDS, and one of them is on his deathbed, and everybody's sitting around there being miserable, his mom, mm-hmm. his best friend, and, uh, and he said, you know, I want, I want this to be, I want it to be remembered that it was fun. Huh. Life was fun, yeah. you know? Do, you know, do, do I want to be sick? No. Do yeah. I want to be dying? No. Is it unfair? Is it terrible? And so, but, but at the same time, I, I loved my life. I, yeah. I, I, had, I loved what I you know, got to do and all that kind of stuff. And both things can be true. Yeah. You know, people have 
love. People desire love, and people seek love, and they should be able to seek love. You know, that's that reminds me of something a, a political scientist who's actually gay himself, David Brockman, once told me. Um, he's at UC Berkeley, and he studies political change and individual persuasion. He's done a lot of really important statistical work, like he does large-scale experiments on how people change their minds. And one of the things he once told me about successful movements, and in particular the gay rights movement, is the movement has to feel at least sometimes like a party. <laughs> and, you know, Stonewall was a protest, but it was also kind of a party. And, and people did feel this sense of joy and excitement and exhilaration. And I wonder if there's things we can do to create that. Or if, do you think that was just part of gay culture and the gay community that was just, this almost reminds me of the question I was asking you temperamentally about how you became so optimistic. Was there something about the gay community that just made it temperamentally able to conceive of something as awful as a pandemic as fun? Or were there things that organizers like you did to make the movement culturally embrace the fun, even in darkness? I, you know, part of me is tempted to embrace the gay thing as you're, <laughs> and to, you know, well, we're just more well, fun of course, than we're fabulous <laughs> and fun and all that. And there is, you know, a camp sensibility and making yeah. fun of things. And I not, think there's a little bit of truth I, I, to that. And I think there is truth. There yeah, is, there is there truth, is truth to, that. to that. And there no, is gay a, bars are way more fun than straight bars. Is I'm a, sorry. They are just more fun. Right. Where there's a solidarity thing. Yeah. There, I mean, there's all, but, you know, but I think you could ask that you could tell the same story about, um, you know, I mean, not exactly the same, but you could tell the same essential point about the African-American struggle where there, mm. there was such tremendous joy and huh. community under such, you know, horrible, yeah. uh, oppressive conditions, including, of course, slavery and so on. Not that it was all joy, sure. but, but they found joy. They found community. They found love. And they found the ability to celebrate one another and joke with one another. And, you, you know, you see the lives of... King and others bantering and so on before he steps out on that balcony. Oh, yeah. at, he was uh, a comedian. At the, yeah, and, and 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 not just him, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm so on the one hand, yes, there's a gay version of that story, and it was it did play a huge part for us. Um, but on the other hand, I think it is also true of people under oppression, and maybe it's just true of human um, human nature, where human nature succeeds, yeah. where people find enough within them and bring together enough of others to keep move forward so that's one answer to the question but the other answer is instrumentally and strategically as a movement as a leader as a campaign you also want to find ways to celebrate victories you mm -hmm. want to make people feel no matter how bad it is we have a strategy we have a yeah. pathway there is a way forward and we're winning yeah. we are making we're laying the groundwork. We're setting the stage. We're scoring points. We're putting points on the board, et cetera. And we were very conscious of that in Freedom mm -hmm. to Marry. We talked all the time, you know, and I'm no sports guy, so I got sick of hearing it. But <laughs> put points on the board. <laughs> Even I was saying it. Um, because it was, it was right. We sure. needed to show people successes. Yeah. Uh, and then be able to show how those successes connected to the, the strategy, the pathway, yeah. how we were going to make it. And so even if, yeah, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, but look what we were able to do here. Look at that. Wow, we can do that. And so there was a lot of effort put into us, by us, put into that strategically, conveying that understanding and, and feeling of progress, of momentum, of opportunity, of hope. Um, so I think that... And, and then, yeah, ideally where you can make it fun, where you can help people see the, the, the gratification, even if not fun, that comes from making a difference, making things better, being brave, being with others, being in solidarity. Those are, you know, all things, very powerful things to draw on. Hmm. So did you have fun in the 80s? 
Of course. You did? <laughs> yeah. I mean, did I, I didn't only have fun in the <laughs> sure, 80s. Of course. <laughs> I mean, there were a lot of bad things in the yeah. 80s. But sure. I mean, I mean, even you, you made this comment earlier when I was talking about my childhood, and I even yeah. alluded to it a little bit in re- rereading my diary and, and uh-huh. seeing a bit of a difference between the way I remember it and the way I wrote it. Um, my memory of it all is, is much more positive because really? that is the way I choose to Just look at look life. At it. yeah. And it's not, I'm not lying when I tell you this story yeah. and I'm willing to acknowledge there's like a palimpsest of emotions there, um, yeah. or, you know, or experience that gets, that evolves as you tell yourself the story and as you, you know, as you learn things that you didn't know at the time and come to rewrite it for yourself. Uh, you know, not in a manipulative way or a falsifying way, but just in a, a way of you now understand things in a different way than you did before. So, uh, yes, I I don't think... I, the 80s were horrible in terms of death and fear and political dysfunction and, uh, you know, the, the, the amount of work we needed to do and what seemed like a, a, a hopeless horizon to most yeah. people and so on. But day to day, we were still having fun. We yeah. were, you know, and, and finding friendship and, and seeking love and going on trips and celebrating yeah. and so on. Yeah, you know, I think almost your Even being... my friend, the friend I described being, you know, crawling into, his, into bed, bed with to, to console and comfort him, he would joke. He really? made jokes. He on made the deathbed. Quips. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't literally his deathbed, but on his dying bed. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, wasn't just, he wasn't just a pool of misery the whole time. Yeah. Now, you know, was he like that all the time, including when I wasn't there and, you know, he was on his own? I'm sure there were horrible, terrible moments, as there is in every life. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I, I almost think you're being too hard on yourself when you say I'm, I'm lying to myself. I'm no, I don't, think, I, I don't think lying. Because I, I think that it's, it's re- almost rewriting. just a matter. Of, well, it's, it's just a matter of selective emphasis, too, right? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. No, that is the point I was trying yeah, to make. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, there's this concept that I imagine you're familiar with because it's become really big in psychology and therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is about how we frame certain stimuli, you know, and that we actually have some power to decide how we're going to respond to some negative stimulus. Mm-hmm. And whether that's physical pain, emotional pain, whether it's some sort of trauma we've experienced. And what, you know, people study this have found is that if you selectively emphasize all your negative experiences in the face of a stimuli, it's totally disempowering. Right. You become paralyzed. Yes. You right. cannot move forward, right. even if it's something fairly small. You know, mm-hmm. not being able to find the right salad at the restaurant you love. You know, if you constantly think about how awful it was at one day, right. you know, I had to eat something really crappy. I got diarrhea. You know, I was miserable the rest of the day. I got fired that day because I was so grumpy. You know, you're not going to be able to move forward with your life, while if you just selectively decide, okay, I've had negative and positive experiences, but in my mind, the thing I'm going to focus on is the time that I didn't get that salad, but I went across the street to another place and got another salad. I mean, that's a trivial example. And I didn't get diarrhea. (laughs) Things were fine. You know, and and not maybe not even fine, but it was great. You know, I found an even better salad across the street. Uh So even something as small and trivial as that, if you focus on the negative, it can be really hard to get through it. Well, so it's, yeah. And that's even if you're aware of both fact patterns. You know, you can be totally aware of the right. fact that this could be a totally shitty day because I don't have the salad in one, or it could be a really good day, but I'm just going to selectively focus on the possibilities instead of the crisis or the trauma. Right. 
And, and, and I my, think that's my, really important for in movements my work to life too. I was very good at doing that. Hmm. In my personal life, even though I know the lesson, I'm mostly good at it, but but not not perfect, not you know. And I, uh, it, yeah. So that's a little interesting. But huh. in, when I'm in role as a leader and as somebody doing activism and strategically trying to achieve something. I'm very, without even knowing the science you're describing, I, you're I, I, I know that, and, yeah. and, and I believe in that, and I, you know, I, I myself huh. have said it several times already, and it's, it is also true in my personal life, and I try to remind myself of it when I'm, in, when I'm not acting up to that standard in my own personal life, when I'm focusing on yeah. you know, the bad salad, or sure. why won't that third person on the bus wear their damn mask right <laughs> Instead of just not paying attention to the person sure. wearing the mask because I can't do anything about it. Sure. What are the things you struggle with personally, if you don't mind sharing? Um, well, you know, I would say, I mean, you know, obviously I, I should lose weight. You know, I don't, ah, I don't eat healthy and so You're on. fabulous, Evan. Yeah, you're well, fabulous you and much. beautiful. More of you to love. <laughs> More uh, of you to love. <laughs> yeah, but obviously not. A, a, I don't worry about it enough to actually do much <laughs> about it in any consistent way. Um, That's because you're already perfect, just yeah. the way you are. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, all right. Let, this is gonna, a good segue to framing a negative situation and thinking about the opportunity. Because the thing you're most known for is is obviously the freedom to marry. Um, so tell me a little bit about why you decided to write about this in at Harvard. Because you're a Harvard law student. Obviously, you've done very well in college. Where did you go to college? By Yale. The way? Yale. Okay. So you go to Yale fancy university, you're in the elite, you go to Harvard Law School, you know, one of the best law schools in the world, all these legendary scholars and peers that are going off to do very important and very mainstream things. And, you know, there's a lot of historical and sociological research suggesting that these elite places and elite circles in general are not places that are usually very open to fringe ideas, partly because you're so used to being accepted and beloved by everyone else, you know, and you kind of lose that when you decide to write a thesis about gay marriage at a time where it's still a crime just to be gay. Hmm. So what, what is it that leads you to decide, you know, I'm going to write about this and do this stuff that I think you've described this, the reaction of a lot of people at Harvard, it wasn't that positive. Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't bad in the way you just said, I mean, okay. it wasn't like I got somebody calling me a faggot or, you know, hating it because it's gay, you know, that I didn't, I didn't encounter any of that, uh, at Harvard and certainly not amongst the faculty, or at least not, not among anyone I talked to. Um, but I'm actually a little surprised by that. Yeah. Do you no. think people wish you about it behind your back? Cause I read in one historical account that the first gay rights organization at Harvard didn't, Harvard law school didn't even start until 1981 and people yeah. were not willing to put their names. Yeah. Well, I was part of that. Oh, you were part of that photo. I was part of that organization. Okay. No, I was part of that organization. organization. I, I think the, the first year, I think I was not That's part right, of the photo. You were, okay. Um, in fact, I think it, if I remember correctly, the only person who actually was willing to appear in the photo was a straight guy, was right? a non-gay friend of mine. Yeah. Right. A straight guy put yeah. his name on the photo. Brian Kukuchos is his name. A, Interesting. A, a really good guy. Um, so, I mean, there might, that, that doesn't sound as nice as you're describing it now, because if yeah, but th- I think you're not even would, able to put your name on a photo, I mean, that's, but that, that sounds like an intimidating environment, no? Well, whether it's, a, I don't know that it's an intimidating environment, or was it everyone being protective and self-intimidating? Mm. You know, if, if we had put our names in it, and by the next year, everybody did. Really? Not everybody. Not everybody, but okay, some people. more did. And and by the th- my third year of law school, there was a new crop crop of uh, 
1Ls who come in, you know, new crop of first year. And they were incredibly militant to the point really? where it already felt like a generational change, literally, <laughs> from one to two year. three years. They, and they were almost kind of assholes um, <laughs> in, how, in how militant they were and derisive of the old <laughs> guard who were like, you know, three minutes earlier yeah. than they. Um, we, we've actually all, or many of us, have become friends since yeah. and now laugh about it. But That's there funny. was that generational yeah. shift, which is another lesson, you know, again, when I talk about the importance of repetition, you can't just assume you've done it. You, sure. Even at, you know, Harvard Law, even in three years, there was this change huh. because each class is a new group of people. Each year yeah. is a new dynamic. Each mix is a new group of people. Anyway, um, when I wanted to write my paper to skip to the end of the story, sure. I can talk about why I chose to write it and so on and so on, my, my thesis on marriage, but I had a very hard time finding an advisor. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think it was because people were, the, the professors were anti-gay, mm. although it is, you know, it's possible some of them were. But I do think, Surely some I of do them think a number of them, well, I didn't go to all of them either. Okay, yeah. I went to the ones that I you know, <laughs> yeah, right. thought would say yes, yeah, but sure. didn't, but didn't. Okay. Now, I, I think some of them were probably busy. They had other, you know, people asking them. There were only so many they could do and so on. But I do think, and I got this tone from some, that they regarded it as a trivial or misplaced mm. topic, not because it was gay, but because it was marriage, hmm. that they either they Who were cares? a little yeah. too ideologically pure, uh, that that's not what gays should be fighting for, mm-hmm. or it was seemed so remote that we couldn't get it. And so a number of professors who one would think on paper should say yes, names you would know today, yeah. did not say yes. Hmm. And the person who wound up sponsoring it is someone you probably would have thought of as not as possibly anti-gay, or yeah. at least not pro-gay, which is very bread-and-butter family law, hmm. not one of the great liberal luminaries and so yeah. on. Uh, and he, I think almost in a bemused fashion, agreed to uh, hmm. oversee. This is West? What was his name? West? Westfall. David Westfall. Westfall. Okay. And he ultimately, of course, gave it, a, I can never remember if it was a B or B plus. We'll go with B plus. I think it's B, according to Harvard's website. I, he gave you a B. Oh, you, do you know that? Yeah. Actually? I think at least the Harvard I, website I, says I, I never actually remember it. <laughs> a B. A B. That, that's what Harvard's website okay. says. I, All right, yeah, I looked at it before I, we, I, our yeah, conversation. Yeah. But. I feel like I made up for it in extracurriculars. <laughs> so it's like, you know, moot. But um, yeah, but he gave it a B. But, but he, I always felt like he redeemed himself because yeah. many years later he was interviewed uh, by a paper doing a profile on me, uh-huh. and he, his quote was, it's so refreshing to have a student apply something you learned in law school. <laughs> so, so I thought, okay, That's good, good for you, David Westfall. That's good. It's, it's an amazing paper, too, because it actually predicts a lot of the current debates. Like, you know, you have a discussion of gender that makes me think you're essentially kind of 35 years ago talking about the discussion of gender non-binary status today, right? And um, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and even just the terminology used in that paper, it's really interesting. So like sexualist? Yes. Well, <laughs> I, I think try- the first sentence of the thesis is ours is a sexualist society. Yes. So what is a sexualist society? Yes. Evan? So I didn't like the word, I never liked the word homophobic. homophobic. Okay. So I wanted to come up with a different word. And this is really? one of my, okay. this, is what, this is an example of a failed attempt. It, it never really <laughs> took. Um, so, you know, but I tried. I tried okay. to shape the language to reflect what I want. Uh, one that was more successful was throughout the paper, you may, may know, I never used the word, or maybe almost never used the word straight, which huh. was the way people would use, I wrote non-gay. 
I wrote, I wrote about gay and non-gay people. And over the years, I've had flack from people, including gay people huh. uh, and, and allies, who would critique that and you know, say, why are you doing that and so on. Now, I think I got it. Now, I'm not even 100% sure anymore. But I think I got that idea from one of my heroes, John Boswell, Professor John Boswell, who wrote the groundbreaking book, Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality, the book that changed my life, mm-hmm. which I could talk about. But um, I always thought, that's really good. Let's shift the... Uh, let's shift the mm-hmm. pre- default presumption, gay and non-gay, uh, and not give straight as if gays are not straight. Okay. To that. So I, 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 I did put that throughout the paper and have always used it ever since. Interesting. And uh, sometimes, as I said, get pushback back by it until um, these friends of mine who were giving me pushback at Lambda Legal and so on, uh, we were attending a Supreme Court argument, and the court, I forget which justice now, actually referred to gay and non-gay people. Huh. And I thought, there you see? are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. See? So when you wrote this thesis and David Westfall, mm-hmm. did, was this something that your classmates were talking about, your fellow I don't gay think, activists? Because like in, in retrospect, we look at it historically and say, wow, that's pretty prescient and also pretty bold, right? Yeah, I mean, was this something I don't, that I don't caused think it was, any I don't think controversy the, at Harvard. No, I wouldn't call it controversy. I don't no. think it was the talk of the school. It wasn't the talk of the school. But but it, you know, enough. Many classmates knew yeah. I was okay. writing it. Some were interested in it and okay. so on. Uh, others just thought, oh, what's that? You know, I I don't remember ever getting any, you know, bad uh, pushback on it. Yeah. Until later, you know, huh. later after after I wrote it, after it was published, when. I began encountering in in much more direct engagement because I was now arguing with them, friends and colleagues and other gay people who were anti-marriage mm. uh, for ideological or and or strategic reasons. And then throughout the rest of the eighties, we would be having these debates and so on. But it, but as I was writing the paper, I didn't particularly encounter that, except to the extent that part of what the paper does is reject as a as a proposed pathway what some academics were writing about mm-hmm. which is the idea of a you know non-marriage alternative a non mm-hmm. you know a, a quasi-marital status alternative which we now today would call something civil like union. domestic yeah. partnership or civil union uh, and they were beginning to advocate and, and I said that is not the right pathway not mm-hmm. not that I was against having those things but we should not settle for those things yeah Okay, so you're you're writing about this in a purely theoretical terms at Harvard Law School, and you, you graduate. Is your first thought, I'm going to go litigate this and try and make this thesis into a reality, or are you tempted? I think, did you work at a firm at some point? Was that even a thing back in the 1980s? Did people all go work for firms Oh, for yeah, a while? it was a huge thing, thing. and okay. it was a huge thing at Harvard, and sure, the challenge course. was to resist the pressure to yeah. work at a firm, and, uh-huh. and I interviewed with firms, as was the thing one did. Sure. I, and, and my first summer during law school, I did a law firm job uh-huh. um, in Pittsburgh, where I grew okay. up. And then my second law school summer, I found a law firm that would allow me to split my summer between their office in Washington, D.C., which mm-hmm. I wanted to be in, and Abidjan, Ivory Coast, wow. which I wanted to be in because I could return to Togo, where I'd been in the Peace Corps. Cool. And then that was the last time I worked in a law firm. Huh. Until after winning the Freedom Fair. Yeah. yeah. So what did you do after law school then? I went to work as a prosecutor. That's right. Okay, I forgot about that. Was that. When you were working as a prosecutor, was your thought, 
still the, the marriage thing is what I eventually want to do? And how was that part of the strategy? More at that, at that particular point, we're now talking late 83, early 84. Yeah. It was more graduating law school, getting settled in a job, beginning work as a prosecutor, learning how to be a lawyer, yeah. uh, moving to New York, you know, getting set up, finding a boyfriend. Uh-huh. And I, in January of 84, so ha- after a few months after having graduated, I began volunteering at Lambda Legal. Okay. And my goal initially was not, I'm going to go there and lead the marriage campaign. Okay. It was much more, I want to be part of gay rights and work on gay rights. Marriage, you know, being in my mind and in the mix, but it wasn't only marriage. It was gay rights mm-hmm. and, and AIDS. Mm-hmm. So what was Lambda Legal doing back then? Lambda Legal was then a tiny organization, but it was the preeminent uh, lesbian and gay legal rights organization. Later, LGBT did it up, but at that point we said lesbian and gay. And uh, Lambda was desperately fighting against this wave of repression and oppression coming from the Reagan administration, from many hostile states, from the right wing, from the religious right and so on, with regard to the military, visitation, custody, um, uh, uh, employment discrimination, Mm -hmm. AIDS, and all kinds of discrimination based on AIDS and cases. Uh, Mm -hmm. Lambda's actually the very, very first AIDS case in the country was happened a block away from my house, from wow. my apartment where I live, where I now live, uh, in New York City, uh, where a doctor was thrown out of his office suite. The the building refused to renew the office suite because they didn't want AIDS patients coming wow. into the doctor's office yeah. uh, in in their building in the West Village. And Lambda took that case, and that became the first case in the country. So that's the kind of thing we were doing. And I was not on staff. I was working by day as a as a prosecutor, but by night and on weekends, I was volunteering at this little band of warriors at Lambda Legal doing all these kinds of cases. And because we were so beleaguered and Lambda was small mm-hmm. and there were so few of us in those days, even though I was you know, months out of law school and really didn't mm-hmm, know anything, mm-hmm. I got to work on all kinds of incredibly impressive and important and exciting projects. I wow. was arguing in the Cir- Sixth Circuit, which you know the federal appellate court, Uh, within a year of graduating law school Mm -hmm. on a religious discrimination case, trying to argue that gay people should be protected with regard to religious Hmm. rights. Uh, This was uh, the head of uh, the local chapter of of Dignity Integrity, which Mm -hmm. is the Mm -hmm. affiliation for Episcopal and Catholic gay people, who was fired from his job at a bank Hmm. because they found out he was gay. And we we tried to argue that as a religious discrimination. How did you do this while you were a prosecutor? Is that allowed? Nights and weekends. Well, that's actually, that's another, I hope, interesting story. So in order to be able to do that, I had to get permission. Okay. Which meant that I had to now come out Mm. to everybody in the office. Now, I wasn't not out. I I had come out during my interview when I was being solicited, uh, recruited uh, at law school when they came to get me. Actually, the person who recruited me to come work at the DA's office, the, the, the DA at the time was Elizabeth Holtzman, okay. former congresswoman. Now Is this Manhattan? Yeah, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Brooklyn DA. Okay. And she had been a hero of mine since her appearance on the Watergate committee as mm-hmm. you know, a, a young member of Congress. And you know, she had asked these tough questions as a very young mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. and so on. And then power. had gone on yeah. to be uh, DA and, and you know, a feminist and a strong fighter and so on. So I, kn- I mean, politically I knew- This is like a good DA's office on, for yeah, you. Yeah, it was a place I wanted to be. But the person who recruited me, who came to the to interview at law school and then hired me and then snagged me to work in her bureau mm-hmm. was the head of the appeals bureau who was Barbara Underwood. Hmm. Barbara Underwood, who's currently the Solicitor General of mm-hmm. New York mm-hmm. State, 
was the first woman acting solicitor general of the U.S. Hmm. and uh, became the first woman attorney general here in New York hmm. when Schneiderman stepped down. Yep, and, yep. Uh, and so Barbara became my first mentor, really. Wow, cool. So I knew, you know, and I had already come out to Barbara because yeah. when I was being interviewed, uh, they were, I forget how it exactly came up, but I said, you know, I just want to be clear, I will not work on any case involving prosecutions for so-called so sodomy. sodomy crimes, yeah. And Barbara sort of indulgently said, okay, I understand, that's all right. And by the way, New York abolished those laws in 1980. Oh, so I was like, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I knew politically it was going to be okay. It's not yeah. like it was a brave act to come out, but I had to come out all the way up the chain of command, sure. all the way up to Elizabeth Holtzman, who had to make the decision herself whether they were going to allow to an assistant on, DA yeah. to do outside stuff. Apparently, mm. no one had asked to do that before. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Right. I've literally so, never heard of so that they, happening they with did, any assistant DA. <laughs> they did say I could do that, and I could do it, but you know, there yeah. were certain conditions that were reasonable conditions, um, you know, avoiding conflict and sure. so on and so on. And the upshot of it, though, was that Holtzman and, and Barbara uh, decided, hey, if this guy wants to do this sort of foofy constitutional stuff, why don't we make him do it for us? Huh. And so they wound up starting to give me projects in the office uh, that were also really exciting and important and good. Things like working on the case that became the Batson case, which abolished mm. uh, race-based peremptory challenges in jury selection. Uh, Holtzman unusually was a DA who said that we should not be allowed to, do this. to discriminate. Wow. And I wrote the brief with Barbara that went to the U.S. Supreme Court on that. Is that one of the reasons you ended up deciding to become a DA? Because you knew they were going to take... I mean, this sounds like a progressive prosecutor No, decades before the pros progressive prosecutor movement became a thing. I mean, now it's all the rage, right? We're yeah. Here well, Oakland, I mean, I knew, she was a good, I knew she was a good guy, and yeah. I had admired her <clears throat> since Watergate. Mm -hmm. And um, I was excited by that, but it wasn't because I wanted to become a progressive prosecutor... That I wasn't thinking in those terms, but I was thinking that working as a prosecutor would be a chance to get a lot of courtroom experience, sure. which I wanted, and to be working for the good guys in some sense, to be yeah. doing public service sure. at an early, instead of going to a firm and sitting in a library. And sure. da -da -da. Yeah. So that was what drew me to it. Which is, I think, the traditional thought within law schools and among young lawyers, mm -hmm. that you go work for a district attorney or a U.S. attorney, and, and that's changed a lot. Nowadays, prosecutors, I almost kind of feel bad for people who are going to work in DA offices and U.S. attorney's offices because I think young law students now see it in light of what happened to George Floyd and, and these movements. Unless you're working for one of those rare prosecutors who has a lot of national fame for being a public defender like Larry Krasner or right. George Gascon or Chesa Boudin in, in San Francisco. Yeah. It's tough. I, did you get any pushback back then? Because, you know, the, the DA's office in at least Manhattan had gone after, or maybe did they actually prosecute the people at Stonewall? In the 1970s, I don't even remember what happened. Obviously, law enforcement came after the, the I don't people. Know if people I actually, did anyone I actually get prosecuted? I should actually know this. I don't know that. The okay. police did. The police actually subsequently apologized, but yeah. much, much later. Okay. Um, but, you know, again, th that was 30 years earlier. Sure. So uh, some people might have had that idea, but that would not have affected my thinking. Okay. Um, the, the race discrimination angle that you talk about, of course, is still present, present and was yeah. present, but that wasn't my sense of what the ethos of, of the Liz Holtzman DA's office was. Okay. I thought of her as being on the good side okay. um, and you know, wanting to do the right thing on stuff. Okay. So tell me, how did you, I want to get us to 1996 when you have this historic victory, but, but just tell me the, the story about how your DA in Brooklyn 
how you get from there to representing these folks in Hawaii and winning this historic victory? What is what is the journey? All right, so I'm a DA. I'm an assistant DA in Brooklyn, and I'm working by day as a prosecutor and by night working you mm-hmm. know, for, for Lambda, Lambda Legal. Legal. And this is the 1980s, and and at Lambda, I'm spending the the 80s basically doing all these great cases on a whole variety of different uh, fronts, not not marriage, you know, all kinds of other battles, um, AIDS cases non-discrimination cases, military cases, and so on, and sodomy law. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote, I wrote Lambda's brief to the Supreme Court in the Bowers v. Hardwick case, mm-hmm. still the biggest loss we've ever had, mm-hmm. um, sat with Michael Hardwick in the, in the courtroom, yeah. um, and, and I'm spending the time debating and arguing with my colleagues in the movement that we should have a marriage strategy and we should do mm-hmm. something. And these debates also were very fractious and intense and difficult. Mm-hmm. They were probably the number one thing we fought about during this period while doing all this other stuff together. Uh, so that was kind of the, that was the 80s. Mm-hmm. During that period, I actually met two of the women who wanted to be part of this case in Hawaii to mm-hmm. bring a marriage case. We met through a mutual friend. Mm-hmm. And they knew of me at this point as someone who had written this paper and mm-hmm. who was arguing for marriage and kind of the lone voice and so on. So they asked, would I do it? Hmm. So I said, well, we should really look at this. And I, you know, I, I think it may be time to have another wave of litigation having lost in the early 70s, but mm-hmm. now we're in the very late 80s, early 90s. Um, brought it to Lambda and was refused, mm-hmm. as did all the other legal groups. And the, you know, there weren't that many, but all of them said no. In the movement. Why did Lambda say no after you've been working so hard for them? Be- well, because they didn't agree with me. Okay. Uh, and, On ideological uh, or strategic grounds, or both? It was predominantly, well, actually both. Both. It was okay. both. I would say the legal director was ideologically opposed, and the executive director at the time was strategically opposed. Hmm. And then others had a variety of mixes of things. Were you pissed <laughs> when they turned you down? <laughs> Because you had been volunteering for them for years, it sounds yeah. like. No, it, it saying, was. Hey, can was, I do this thing with you? And they're like, Nah. We just keep we, doing the stuff we want you to do for free. It was. <laughs> it was very. Uh, yeah, it was very tense. I mean, we. Yeah. It was. I can imagine that bordering on dysfunctional at some points. Really? That kind of fighting and stuff, nice. and then really came to some ugly stuff Ugh. that then got resolved. You know, then we worked through it and stuff. Good. But it, yeah, it was definitely a very unpleasant, very difficult period. And in part because everybody was under this tremendous sure. pressure cooker of. AIDS and AIDS, repression yeah. and exclusion and fear and and in part because we were immature and, and didn't handle it that well, you know, um, and egos and all that sure. kind of stuff, including me. Uh, anyway, so that was that was the 80s. Yeah. And uh, I, I was told no, though I was also told that I could help behind the scenes. Huh. So all of that, however, to our earlier discussion about how things work out, all of that actually turned out to, I think, be a good, good thing, thing. Huh. because the fact that I wasn't allowed to take the case and that Lambda wouldn't be part of the case at that juncture meant that the couples in Hawaii eventually went to a local attorney mm-hmm. named Dan Foley, Foley yeah. who, uh, who... He's a straight guy, right? He's not, non, he's not, not gay. gay yeah. Who actually turned out to be the best thing that happened to that case. Interesting. Because he knew the politics, he knew okay. the law, he had credibility, he had incredible savvy. Uh, you know, uh, and well, Why was he interested in the case? He believed he he he's always a liberal, okay. or at least from a you know a relatively young age, maybe not in his high school days. Sure, but he you know he was a good guy, a liberal. He had at one point done service as the legal director of the Hawaii ACLU. Okay, he was now in private practice, and he believed that who am I to say if I can be happily married 
these other couples should not be able to get married. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we're going to win. We're probably not going to win, but I, I don't want to turn them away. Hmm. So he agreed to do it. Did he have a personal connection to the movement in no, some way? Not, it was just, it was no. purely uh, Other than he philosophical. had an ACLU okay. background. But wow. yeah, no, it was a pure integrity, personal. Wow, um, that's impressive. Good guy. Yeah, well, he's a great guy. Yeah. He's one of my close friends and heroes. He's still with us today? Oh, absolutely. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, I guess that's not that long yeah. ago. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> depends who you're asking. Um, <laughs> but he is very much still with us, and we're still very much in touch. Okay. Um, and he's still one of my heroes. So Dan uh, took the case. I uh, reached out to Dan and just said, if there's anything I can do to help, let me know. These are, you know, this is before the internet and all that. You know, our whole relationship was phone and then phone and fax for years before we ever met. Mm-hmm. But we began bonding um, partly over our shared love of history, hmm. partly as I began helping him more with this case, um, and, and partly as the case advanced. So Dan brings the case, and as predicted, loses. Meanwhile, things at Lambda have now reached this incredible boiling point that we were just talking about a moment ago. Uh, It's a long story, not worth going into the whole thing, but basically I was fired. Then there was a tremendous pushback from the board and the community, and so I was unfired. Wow. But all of that, of course, left kind of a sour taste in everybody's mouth for So a you had while. left the DA's office and gone to work for oh, yes, Lambda full-time? Okay. Yes. And they fired you? Yes. Okay. And then unfired me wow. within a week. Within so, a week? Uh, within a week. So I decided, <laughs> you know, I need to start thinking about what am I doing? Do I really yeah. want to keep doing this? And so on and so on. Wait, so what I, was the source of the dispute? Just I'm out of curiosity, because it... It, this is all glossed over when we look at the history of this case. I mean, I've read the history of this case, and I didn't know that you got fired and unfired by Land around this time. Yeah. It was partly the, the, partly the political pol- disagreements, ma- arguments over marriage, the constant arguing and so on. Yeah. But I don't want to glorify it by saying it was all this pure ideological <laughs> thing. It was also, you know, tensions stuff. and interpersonal egos yeah. and growing pains and yeah. stress and, you know, not organizational dynamic yeah. stuff. And the happy part is that we all did eventually reconcile and be, come back to being That's friendly awesome. and in some cases friends again. Good. We got everybody got better and got through it. But it was a huge turmoil and very sure. very painful at the time. The, the ED resigned once wow. I was re- reinstated, so then new leadership came in. That leadership was much more supportive and so on. So So you basically kind of ran a coup. <laughs> Well, I would, I would not characterize <laughs> yeah, it just, that way. I'm exaggerating, but yes, that's, I, there were that there were different really divisions, and it ultimately worked out in okay. my favor. But it was okay. nobody had clean hands, and it was sure. not perfect, yeah, yeah. and uh, it was an unfortunate episode. Okay, um, but that means you can now do the marriage campaign. Yeah. So, so okay. under the new leadership, I'm now allowed to be helpful. Awesome. Not, but you know, the case is already moving forward. Sure. But in the meantime, I had actually flirted with the idea of leaving activism and doing something else because I was thinking, you know, this is really painful. It's yeah. just constant arguing. I spent the last decade arguing. And so one of the things I did was I got a job talk huh. to interview for a teaching position at the University of Hawaii. Wow. So yeah. <laughs> so I figured it well, at worst comes to worst. Yeah. It's Hawaii. So I had never been there. So they flew me to Hawaii. <laughs> okay. And I was going to give a job talk. And I gave a job talk on this case, hmm. on this new marriage case that had just begun. And the, the first loss and why the loss was wrong mm-hmm. and how we should blah, 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 blah. So this is in state court in Hawaii. In state court in Hawaii. Okay. Yeah. And um, I think in part because my talk 
was more activism and strategy and all this other stuff and a smattering of law. I did not get the law job. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lambda, the leadership change and everything settled into a better groove and so on, and that got better, and I stayed at Lambda. And when we won in the Hawaii Supreme Court, and, and, and Lambda then allowed me to write an amicus brief, so mm -hmm. I actually filed a brief on behalf of gay organizations in the Hawaii Supreme Court in Dan's case as the case went up on appeal. So now the, now the movement groups who had all said no are now w at least willing to be supportive uh, through an amicus brief, a, a friend of the court brief, in the Hawaii Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. May 5th, 1993, the Hawaii Supreme Court becomes the first court ever to say marriage exclusion is discriminatory. Mm. They said, we're not going to say that gay people must be allowed to marry, but we are going to say that if the government wants to discriminate, it has to at least show a reason. Legitimate state and so we're going to yeah. send it back down to the, to the lower court for a trial wow. to give the government a chance to put up or shut up, yeah. either come up with a reason or stop discriminating. Wow. So I describe this as the day the earth moved, Dude, yeah. a tectonic shift. I begin calling everybody and saying, no matter what you thought before, yeah. the, 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 the ideological resistance, the strategic, this is the moment yeah, we're we going to win this yeah. case. We can win it. And what's more, it's not just going to be a case in Hawaii. This is going to change everything. This yeah. is going to cause national discussion, which we want. And it's going to engage. And we're going to be able to seize this opportunity. God, that must have felt so good. Yeah, no, it was, it was exhilarating. Did you think you were going to win in the Supreme Court? Absolutely. You did think so? Yeah, of course. Really? I, I always think I'm going to Did you think... <laughs> But I mean, realistically, you really thought yes. this, I mean, this yes. is the court that's going to, what, what were the signs? I mean, were there any well, signs? Well, for one that, thing, they had just ruled in our favor. No, but I'm saying yeah. before that ruling. Oh, before, before the Supreme before Court ruling, the ruling, did you think you were going to no, win in the Supreme before Court? Before the ruling, when we had first gone on, I was, I was completely relying on Dan. Dan okay. I was relying on Dan's knowledge of the personalities, the uh -huh, assessment, uh -huh. the jurisprudence, the patterns, the culture of the society, and so on. Sure. And what Dan would be the first to say is when he filed the case, if the court had been the same when, he, when we reached the court as the day he filed it, we would have lost. lost yeah. But in the intervening last six months, they had had retirements and changes, uh -huh. and two new justices wow. came in, yeah. and that shifted the Everything. dynamics, and yeah. we were able to uh, eat out a victory. So you, you, know, you don't know. Wow. Had, had, had it been what it had been when we started, we probably would have lost. Uh -huh. But when the opinion, opinion came down in your favor, yeah. were you expecting that? Was Dan predicting yeah, we that was going to well, happen? Yeah, he we, thought he was. We were hopeful. We really? Were, yeah, we were. De well, wow. you know, again, a always hopeful. And B, there had been questions at argument that made us think, hmm. Yeah. You know, they they get it. Yeah, they, you can kind of predict when you look at the transcript actually, of all you arguments. Can't, you, really, you can't. Really? Lawyer, lawyers will always say, "Don't." Don't predict. Don't. Now, they, they're usually overstating because okay. you can sometimes predict, but you can't always predict. Yeah, that's true. Some, sometimes a judge will ask a question because they're really sending a message to another judge sure, sure. or they really want to hear an answer, but they don't, you know, yeah, yeah. there's all kinds of stuff. So you can't, can't always predict, okay. but sometimes, and so, you certainly can be hopeful. And how did you hear about the decision? Did Dan give you a phone Dan call? Called me. He called you. Mm -hmm. And what's your reaction? Are you just jumping up and down? Did you throw something? Did the, you scream? The earth just moved. <laughs> the earth yeah. just moved. Wow. Absolutely. And cool. began corralling and rallying and yeah. urging the movement. And now, despite the, the difficulties of the 80s and all those years of frustrating yeah. arguments and the ups and downs of being fired and all of that kind of stuff, despite all of that, because I had weathered that and been able to stick with it and, and gotten to the place we got it, there was now somebody who could, in partnership with the local leadership, mm -hmm. 
could figure out how to move the movement and how mm-hmm. to seize this moment. Sure. And so what then became my role was to build the kind of campaign and enlist the support and get people to understand the opportunity that had just opened up yeah. before us. To harness this and turn it into a, a nationwide and frankly global and movement. Try to build a strategy and a campaign and ultimately... You know, so you saw that right away. Right well, when I mean, those I, words I, I, came down and you look at this opinion, you're thinking, okay, yeah, I, this, I, this is I, I didn't this is see every detail of everything that sure. needed to happen, but I, I, I saw this was our moment. Now we must rally. And Lambda, under new leadership, uh, got that. And so Lambda now authorized me when Dan came back to me and said, will you join the case now as co-counsel awesome. with him? Now I became co-counsel. Counsel. So now I was officially on the case. Yep, yep. In addition to what was more important, being this national leader yeah. to try to corral and build uh, a, what became a campaign. And what year is this? This is 1993. Uh, 93 okay. year, and it took till like 1993 through 94. Lambda designated me director of the marriage project, uh-huh. created a marriage project, relieved me of most of, most of my other cases. I kept one other case huh. in addition to my new Hawaii marriage case. The other case I kept was my Boy Scouts case, mm, which yeah. I later argued in the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that proceeded through that. So the 90s now I spent as director of the Marriage Project, leader of the National Freedom to Marry Coalition, which yeah. I built, to try to corral the movement and allies and others to do the, quote, everything else yeah. that was needed, the political, the public education, the fundraising, et cetera, nationwide alongside this case that we were also running in Hawaii that was galvanizing and catalyzing everything. Yeah. And so did you talk to the former executive director at Lambda Legal about this? Yes, I did. Really? Right after the opinion? I don't don't think it was probably right Right after after. the opinion, but at some point I did and reached out to him Uh because he, I knew he supported marriage, even though he had thought strategically it was the wrong time. Okay. And I wanted to move beyond the disagreement and bitterness. Good for you. And he was awesome. Well, and him too. Yeah. And he was also, you know, he was sick. He, he was dying of AIDS. Oh my God. Um, so I, I just didn't want it to end that way. So sure. I reached out to him and I said, you know, I, I know we've had our ups and downs, sure. but I know you care about this and I, you could be really helpful. And I, I laid out a couple of things that I thought he could help advise and be part of engaging some of the media. He had strong connections at the New York times and so wow, on. Cool. And, you know, would you be willing to come in and advise and, uh, and help be part of that? And he very, Graciously and I think gratefully, um, you know, seized the chance to reconcile and to do that. It was the first time he'd come back into the office, and uh, and he was able to help. And and I had a similar kind of, even better uh, reconciliation with the legal director who had, who I'd butted heads with. Uh, But you know, but it took time. It wasn't easy, but it did not end on a bad note. Did he ultimately die of AIDS? He did. He did. What was his name? Tom Stoddard. Wow. God. This is like a war. It feels like a war story. Oh, terrible. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Just all these Well, I mean, just to flash suffering. forward, I forget where it was, like 25 years now, I, I often tell the story of people ask me, what did you do when you won? And mm-hmm. one, of, one of the things I'll say is when I went, I went into my office after celebrating with my staff, and then we all went to our battle stations because we all had our jobs. And I'm the only lawyer on the staff at Freedom to Marry because mm. Freedom to Marry wasn't a litigating organization. So I went, my job was to read the opinion and mm-hmm. to just make sure everything's... So I, I'm reading the opinion, and as I'm reading it on the computer screen, I, I started crying. And mm. I totally shocked myself. I had no expectation that that was going to be my reaction. And, and I thought that the reason I was crying was that every paragraph would be some memory 
of a person we lost, an argument, a friend that I had worked with on X or Y or Z, wow. something I had written, a, you know, a debate I had, and just this this history of the work of that it had taken yeah. to get to that point. And it wasn't until three days later that I realized that was not actually the only reason I was crying. But for for three days, that's what I thought was yeah. what had brought tears to my eyes. That we had we had lost so many people, that we'd gone through so much, that we'd mm -hmm. worked so hard for it, and that we had persuaded and yeah. made so much progress. Yeah. How do you prepare yourself for a conversation like that? Going back to this guy who you've been in battles with who... Sounds like, was he the one who got you fired, basically? He, he's he the fired one who fired you. me. And you have to go back to him and try and reconcile and work together again. Well, I mean, again, what did this you was, do? You know, it was years later. Oh, it was years later. Okay. It was years later. Um, did he have AIDS at the time when you, he, he was did, at Lambda? He, he did. did. And, okay. you know, I think he was not at his best in okay. that period. Um, I don't, I, I don't say it was because he had AIDS, but, mm -hmm. but that didn't help. Sure. Um, he was under tremendous pressure. Yeah, he I mean, was fed up with how bad things were. He had his own fear and anxiety and sure. stress. And, and I, you know, I think he did the wrong thing, but it was a, everybody was acting a little badly. Yeah. Um, and so that he did the wrong thing and then the board undid it and he didn't like that. So he quit and, uh, you know, went, went off and then he went on to do some other activism stuff and then, you know, he got sicker. And um, at, at some point, I forget the exact year, but I reached back out to him and he was perfectly ready to take the call and to be helpful. So it was an intense conversation when you reached well, back we out didn't, to we him? Didn't, we didn't, you didn't talk about the old We didn't debate shit. the merits of the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right, we just, said, just sort of said, you know, look, I know, I know we've had our ups and downs, but I also know you really care about this and yeah. I'd love to have your help. Is this something you'd be willing to do? And he you know, immediately said yes. Yeah, that's one of the things I've been struggling with, honestly, and I, I think it's so important in movements. How do you reconcile divisions? And there's even an individual who's really important to DXC in its early stages, Actually, a Yale graduate, great guy, really, really brilliant and smart. Hates my guts. I made some decisions he was really unhappy with. He left. Um, and I've always wanted to reach out to him and figure out how I can bridge this divide. And, and I sent him an email, and I think maybe that wasn't the right approach because emails are cold and it just doesn't feel authentic, I think. But I think that's really important for movements to figure out a way. And you were talking about this earlier in your talk, too, mm -hmm. that you have all these relationships that were once fractured, but there's something really valuable about maintaining them yeah. and showing solidarity even years later, yeah. despite the fact that you fought tooth and nail, because there's power that comes from oh, the sense of solidarity, even in many ways, precisely because you've been through these battles, because it gives you strength and helps you realize, yeah, we can get through this together. We can have these tooth and nail fights where we're literally trying to get each other fired and, and still work together towards this common vision yeah, I don't, I don't maybe, know how to do that and also like, I really not, don't well part of it's timing and you know timing. maybe maybe not right away but we were talking earlier about how you remember things differently and how you yeah. come to understand things later and so on you know people don't stay that they don't necessarily stay static and the same and mm -hmm. fixed some people do but maybe there maybe there will come a time where everybody's ready to look at it a little differently or at least to move beyond it and you know we've all made our mistakes or we all yeah. come to a different place in life and so on. So, you know, I think you do have to look for those opportunities. I, I do also feel now maybe somebody else would say something different. I feel like I certainly was a fighter and certainly had strong opinions. And I'm sure a lot of people thought of me as a, you know, strong, 
opinionated and tough and uh, overly fixated and da da da. But I tried to stay on a high note. I tried not to burn bridges. I tried sure. not to take cheap shots. I tried to be able to laugh with people also, even people who I was fighting with, so they might still think I was funny, even if sure. And at some point, that allows you the chance to try to connect, and that often works. I mean, yeah. maybe it wouldn't work with everyone, but it worked enough. Okay. So it sounds like after this victory in 1993, you kind of can see the writing on the wall. Right. Well, you're you're kind of already imagining everything that unfolds over the next twenty years. I wouldn't say I imagined everything that. Okay, but a lot of it. What I what I often said then, and you asked a question today, or somebody said something today that made about about predictions that I like to make predictions and Uh stuff. What I what I felt then and said then and still think is true is I was usually right about what would happen and usually wrong about (laughs) when when it would happen. (laughs) So I did think we would win. Yeah. But sitting in 1993, if somebody had said, okay, tell me the year, I wouldn't have picked 2015. What would you, you have know? picked? Oh, you know, you, when you're young, when you're that age, you think 10 years is a long time. <laughs> you know, so I probably... So you're like 2001. Uh, 2003. <laughs> really? Space Odyssey, yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, you, you don't think 2015. Uh-huh. I mean, you don't even think you're going to be alive in 2015, you know. Yeah. Um, but of course, in retrospect, historically, that's like yeah, nothing, that's, you know, but, but that's not how you think when you're younger. Sure. So, you know, I thought it was, you know, 10 years, you know, and yeah. not, not literally 10 years, but, you know, a metaphorical 10 sure. years, which is like a biblical, you know, three span and 10 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's score. not totally unreasonable because you've got the Hawaii Supreme Court on your side. I mean, that's a state Supreme Court. That's, that's massive institutional progress. Yeah. Well, they didn't rule for marriage. They ruled that, that, that we should have our day in court. Yeah, but no, true. absolutely. I mean, I... I believed we were going to win and, and did believe we were going to win. I didn't actually realize until this conversation that the victory was in 2013 and not 20, not sorry, 2015, 1993 and not 1996. Cause so, I, I was under the impression 1996 was the moment where everything was amazing. No, both were important. Both were important. Okay. 1993 was when the Hawaii the Supreme, Supreme Court put it back to the, opened, the trial court, basically set the case on, you know, on, on its path. Okay. And the 1996 is when they officially say gay marriage right. is now it's a when constitutional we won. right. Yeah. It's when we had the trial and won yeah. at trial and, Did you got, know and that had was the world's happen? first ever ruling in favor of the freedom to marry. Um, did I, well, you know, I didn't Again. know it was going to happen, but I, I believe <laughs> it was going to happen. I believe was the we judge giving win. you cues? Was, was well, the he... judge, the judge was a highly respected everybody, you know, everybody yeah. on both sides would have said he's, you know, like one of their best judge. That's why yeah. he was given this case. Kevin um, Chang? Kevin Chang. Yeah. Judge Chang. I'm so proud and I was a Chinese guy. You should be. Because Chinese guys, we're always left out of social justice stories yeah. and no one ever thinks we're down. No. And I've seen this in activism for 20 plus years. Every movement I've been a part of is like, I'm the only Chinese guy. And everyone's like, what are you doing here? Yeah. And yeah. So I, I have to say, I just want to add that in. I'm so proud of that guy. There you go. And he, so proud that you argued. ever. I know. Yeah. I'm so proud that you convinced him to make the right call. Yeah. Well, he did the right thing. And um, you asked earlier, did any, uh, have, have any opponents, or somebody asked earlier, yeah. have any opponents ever come up to me later mm. and said they were sorry? The state's attorney in Hawaii, mm. who argued against us in that trial, um, years later wrote to me, and we began talking and emailing and so on, uh, saying that he regretted that he had wow. defended the wrong side, and he believed we were right, and he's glad we won, and he, he was very generous and kind in his writing. And... The, the one that's even more impressive, although I feel less warmly about him, um, is a guy named Charles Cooper, who... I know Charles Cooper. He's the famous conservative lawyer, right? Famous conservative He's lawyer. Defended Trump. Or no, he defended he, someone who is he, breaking with Trump? 
No, he def- he defended. Was I think it was Bolton's attorney. I think he was Bolton's attorney ah, most that's recently. Right. Okay, yeah. But he has a long history, history going back to, politics. and the reason I don't like him is going back to Reagan when he mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. the I don't know if he was the head of OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel, or yeah. some such position. And he wrote the infamous memo in 1985 or so, give or take, saying that while essentially justifying or allowing AIDS discrimination hmm. on, the, on behalf of the federal government. He had a whole contorted argument about that. Discrimination based on AIDS is illegal, but mm-hmm. discrimination based on fear of AIDS, even irrational, is not illegal. And therefore, people should be licensed to mm-hmm. discriminate against people with AIDS. So I knew him from then and, mm-hmm. and disliked him from then in the 1980s. He then sur- resurfaces as the hired gun for Hawaii hmm. after we won... In, wow. in the trial in 1996, when they go back to the Hawaii Supreme Court, Charles Cooper represents Hawaii in, in, in the appeal of, of our victory. He then resurfaces again. Why the at, hell did they hire him? He's like a conservative firebrand in Hawaii. They, mean, because at that point, they, they just wanted, they wanted whoever to, was going to be the most evil. They effective. wanted to block the case. Okay. And it may also be that a lot of the bar there would not take the case. You know, yeah, because maybe. Yeah. So... Um, he resurfaces again in the Prop 8 trial. Hmm. Remember, after Proposition 8 here in California, yeah. there was a trial in front of Judge Walker mm-hmm. challenging Prop, Prop 8, the anti-marriage ban here in uh, California. And Charles Cooper was the lawyer hmm. on that case, uh, the, ba- the bad guy lawyer. Mm-hmm. His moment of infamy in that case came when he was asked by the judge, how would, uh, what answer would you give? How would you know, you know, what harm would there be if gay people are allowed to marry? And his answer was, I don't know, judge. I don't know. And, you know, we all quoted that and used it. And so I don't know, but, you know, we can't take the chance, basically. But I don't know. That's your reason, you know? So Charles Cooper later attended his daughter's wedding to another woman. Really? And came out in support of marriage. So whoever asked me earlier, you know, have any opponents, including opposing counsel, ever yeah. come around? The answer is absolutely. Damn. I had no idea. Yeah. I, I, I knew him from yeah. John Bolton and some other right. stuff. I didn't realize he was that right. involved he, in the game. He's still fight. on the right wing. Yeah, but, he is. But he moved. Dang. Like Liz Cheney yesterday. Have you talked to him about it? I've never talked to him about it. You've never talked to him about no. it? No. I, I have mutual friends, including my friend Brian Kakuchas that we talked okay. about earlier, yeah. used to work with him, even though they disagreed politically yeah. uh, and he was my conduit to charles cooper okay all right so you win in 1996 and then you start freedom to marry right after that and no i started freedom to marry in 2001 2001 okay so five years later and freedom to marry is the organization that i think rightly is is seen as the the, the leader of coordinating all these different movement resources in the direction of pushing forward with gay marriage and why why did it take longer then, or maybe I, maybe I should say not why did it take longer than five years? Why did it take a shorter amount of time than the hundreds of years that I think many people thought it would take? Like what what do you think were the key things that happened between 1996 and 2015 when the Supreme Court? I mean, obviously you've talked about some of them. 2004, you had all these state ballot initiatives that went south. 2008, you had the ballot initiative in California that, you know, in many ways I almost think that was a good thing because I, I remember I was not... I mean, I was supportive, but I wasn't that involved in the right. activism. Right. And right after 2008 in the California ballot initiative, I was in Chicago, right. not in California. Uh-huh. 
And we had a huge rally right, yeah. right after 2008. And this is right. kind of reminds me of what you said earlier about losing forward. Exactly. Like, how right. do you turn That's this a, loss into a perfect victory. example okay. of you may not win every battle, but you can engage your losses so as to lose forward. Yeah. And, but, and, and that was an example of that. But tell me what your thought process is after 1996. You get this historic victory and then it gets reversed, right? By the yeah, so, Hawaii electorate. Well, first, yeah, right, exactly. They, they pass what becomes the first, first ballot of initiative. 30 or some mm -hmm. anti gay anti-marriage constitutional amendments yeah, yeah. and they succeed in hawaii in blocking our victory there was this a legislature or was this about well, the legislature the passed legislature it and then it had to be ratified by, by the public people and so they did both and was it did. close no they won decisively they did that's really sad yes it was very sad yeah um even in hawaii even in hawaii yeah. but in that in that time and with the kind of campaign we ran huh. which was a what i later came to describe as an avoidance campaign where yeah. be, the political savvy people would all say they're not a, they're not in favor of marriage hmm. gay makes them uncomfortable don't talk about that talk about fairness mm -hmm. talk about protect our constitution hmm. talk about being fair to everybody you know mm -hmm. and my view was of course those things pull better mm -hmm. but they won't get you where you need to go no. you need to do the heavy lifting that's mm -hmm. an that's not an example of uh, even losing forward, but it's also not an example of how effectively to win. When, yeah. It's it's a it's a hopeful avoidance mm -hmm. of the problem, which may work, you know, one out of nine times, but yeah, mostly won't. Um, so that so the, we didn't. The political win. operators were telling you don't talk about right. gay marriage or love at all. Just talk about fairness and these Correct. abstract. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I, and I think that's kind of how the 2008 campaign was run too in California. Yeah, right? it was it a was, little more muddled, but there yeah. was. There was there were mistakes. There was made like a lot of avoidance. Well. It took us a while to learn how to do it right. Yeah, and you've got so, to talk about so it. So that whole period toward the end, where we suddenly started winning, 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 that's because, among other things, in 2012, when there were four marriage ballot measures uh -huh. on the ballot, by then we we had worn down and exhausted the people who wanted to try the avoidance and said, no, we're going to try a real, yeah, yeah. you know, engagement campaign, a heavy mm -hmm. lift campaign. Plus we had the cumulative progress we'd so, already yeah. made. So we were starting in a different place. Got more momentum. And we got, and we won four out of four. Yeah. And that wow. political moment of winning those ballot measures, it didn't end the battle, but it, it definitely shifted the politics the and, point. and okay. set the stage for what became next year an important winning in the Supreme Court where we toppled DOMA, the so-called yeah, Defensive yeah. Marriage Act, and accelerated, accelerated. So the last several years, you saw this accelerating cumulative success. Yeah. But all of that built on these many, many, many small wins and losses and uh, periods of just struggle and engagement. Yeah. You know, do you know Dave Fleischer? Of course. Yeah. So he, I've hung out with him a bit, and he's taught me a lot. Dave is a just a great guy, and he runs the Leadership Lab, uh, or he did, I don't know if he's still there, at the LA LGBT Center, which is surprising to me. I didn't realize this. Apparently, it's like the largest gay rights organization in the world. It's, it's huge, huge. Yeah. It's because they run a hospital and have yeah, massive they, amounts of revenue all from all the community services, services they yeah, do. my friend Lori Jean heads that. Yeah, but he, I mean, I was fascinated by the techniques they use to try and persuade people, because they kind of lead with the opponent's arguments. <laughs> they, they, they really do take these issues on head on. As you said, there's no avoidance at all. So um, I actually participated in this, partly to learn, partly because I just believe in it. Mm. But I was doing some trans canvassing with them mm -hmm. and they would lead with a video. They would show every person they were canvassing a video that the opponents were using to scare people away mm -hmm. from trans civil rights. Mm -hmm. Like it was a video, like a very effective advertising campaign that had been done, I think in Texas or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And they were doing this, or Houston, yeah, mm -hmm. you probably know better than I do. It was basically accusing trans people of predating on young children, you mm -hmm. know, that you have no idea what's going to happen in the bathroom right. if 
some trans woman who's secretly a man is going right. to come in and take your baby away, you know? Um, and he would lead with that and say, let's talk about this. And the idea was, this is going to come anyways. We have to take this on head on and, and help people kind of almost emotionally reframe their reactions to this, right? With, with narrative, good, effective narrative. And so they would hear this story from the other side and then they'd encourage you to tell a story. If you're trans, obviously you could tell your own story, but for me, I'm not trans. Obviously I would tell the story of a trans person I knew. Right. And they found like astonishingly positive results yes. from taking this on head on and really just addressing the issue. But the other thing about it is they, they really did, and then you talked about this in your talk today, they tried to frame it in terms of common values. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, you know, you have to be on board trans or you're a bigot. It, mm-hmm. was, it was very much about, no, trans people are just, they want to be treated equally and with dignity, even though they're different. Or and, what, and or they, what have values you ever do you? Different? How do you think yeah, how do you people feel about should that? be treated? Yeah. How do you think people should be treated? Yeah, and have you ever you been think treated a, differently? Do you think a trans person would feel that way? You know, exactly. What about the mother of a trans person? No, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they, they, they really did try to harness, and it was, it was pretty powerful yeah. to see him at work. Yeah, um, well, Dave was part of several key contributors to the uh, evolving understanding, the learning of how to do this right. Yeah. And uh, I often just summarize it as conversation is the chief engine of change. Yeah, it really and is. what we needed to do was to get people to have those conversations. And of course, as we've discussed, it may have to be six and a half conversations. Yeah. It may be millions of conversations. It will be millions. It, it won't always be you being the best person having the conversation with someone else. It might be somebody else, et cetera. It's not just about messaging. It's about message delivery, particularly through conversation. Yeah. And a lot of the kind of air cover of TV ads and political debate are in furtherance of the ground game of conversations and mm-hmm. persuasion yeah. and, and political organizing and litigation and legislation. It's not one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a study in the quarterly journal of economics by these Harvard political scientists who for some reason published an article in a very prestigious economics journal, but it's about the tea party. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of us probably are not very supportive of the tea party, but they've had a lot of aggressive campaigns and protests, a lot of grassroots tumult. And they were very effective, obviously. I mean, they were, unfortunately, probably among the most powerful political forces of the last generation, the last 50 years. And these political scientists were trying to study what was it about all these actions that led to change. And, you know, a lot of people who do protests, including a lot of people who participate in all those Tea Party rallies, thought there was some sort of direct impact that people would see the protest or it would be covered in the media and everyone would be persuaded that Obama's a Muslim and, you know, blah, 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 whatever it is. And that wasn't the way it worked. Apparently what these scholars found out when they teased out all the data was that these rallies had basically no direct impacts at all. <laughs> like they, they thought all their protesting was going to change people and convince people that the Democrats were taking over the country and taxing us out of existence. And, you know, we, we have to have a Tea Party because there's no taxation without representation. But the real effect and the reason they had power was because it was inspiring the people participating in the rallies to go home and talk to their yeah. friends and family members because they'd go back from the rallies and say, Dang, I just like went out there and had a headdress on and was shouting, and I'm gonna go talk to my coworker now in front of the water cooler. Right. And so there's this massive, like secondary effect where people were right. empowered in their personal social networks to go talk about yes. why you need to vote Republican in the next election. Yeah. To the point that I think the number was for every person who participated in the Tea Party rallies, they basically converted about 10 people down the street in, in the Republican direction at the next midterm election right. just through these social networks. Yes. Yes. So, but it, the, the, the mechanism of change, though, was conversations. Yes, and, and an 
a small, activated, engaged yes. base of people who are just having can have enormous them. disproportionate yeah. impact. And that is what we also achieved. We didn't know the science at that point, but yeah, yeah. that was what we were doing. Yeah. What do you think was the, was the highlight and the low light of the marriage campaign from after 1996? Obviously, 1996 is this historic moment. You just described it as the day the world shook. Between 1996 and 2015, was there any point where, I mean, it sounds like there was no point where you didn't think you were going to win because you've made very clear that you always thought we were going to win. What was the hardest point for you between 1996 and 2015? The hardest period of that 32 years was roughly, I'd say, the period between 2004, 5 through to 2009. Huh. Uh, because it took us from 2004 when we won marriage in Massachusetts and then, and, and well, we won in 2003 and people began getting married in 2004. Mm-hmm. It took, then we, were, we had several different cases and legislative efforts and even ballot measures, all, all these different uh, operations underway to get the second state, the third state, so forth. Mm-hmm. It took us from 2004 until 2008 mm-hmm. to get that second state. Mm-hmm. So it was essentially five years when we were struggling, working, mm-hmm. and we would just fail here, we fail lost there, there we, yeah. this one didn't go, so on. We got our second state. The second state we got was California. And then you lose We it. had a period of time. Then that was taken away from us in, wow. in this stunning blow that really ultimately shocked the conscience and awoke people in a way yeah. that you described. That turned out to be a good thing. But at the time, that's not how it felt. Fortunately, by the end of 2008, we had brought along a spare. Mm-hmm. We won our third state, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So we ended 2008. On a high note. With, no, well, I wouldn't call it that because people were still reeling from, from Prop 8. Prop 8 but yeah. we had finally gotten our second state. Nice. And so th- that five-year period, there was tremendous um, pressure from within to give up, mm-hmm. to stop. I mean, after the 2004, when we lost the 13 ballot measures and Bush got elected, and I wrote that speech about mm-hmm. scary work of winning and sure. so on, there was tremendous pressure on the part of some organizations, even within the movement, mm-hmm. to, to, to stop, to go shift, give up marriage, go for something else, re- retrench, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Movement leaders had to convene co- gatherings and conferences. We had to, re- we had to write these new papers and, and concept papers and arguments and try to rally people around a vision of how to win, which my friend Matt Coles and I and a few others led this process that ultimately held together mm-hmm. a critical mass of the movement groups and, in fact, got people to redouble their commitment. But it took about a year or so of wrangling and so on. And even then, the recommendations that we agreed on about how to do it better, it took another five years to get people to surrender their turf, mm-hmm. pull their resources, acknowledge the need, et cetera, to the point where I then launched the new version of Freedom to Marry as mm-hmm. this full-fledged campaign that we had called for all along, but people were just not yet ready yeah, to gel be behind. Mm-hmm. So that that five-year period, the sort of the 2005 through 2010, 2004 through 2008, depending on which, you, which milestone you want to count, that was the hardest part. But even then, you know, every every one of those years had huge successes, sure. great periods of excitement, real progress, small victories, et cetera, which is how we kept it all Got going. going. Yeah. But if you look at it in retrospect, not the beginning, not the dire lone years, mm-hmm. not the mm-hmm. anger arguing years. It was that period of the 
just trying to get people to really commit and really believe and stay with it, even when it looked like nothing was happening. Did you ever feel like giving up? Did not, you ever think not about in it? That period, not in that period. Not okay. in that period. I mean, okay. as I, you know, there were a couple periods earlier where I yeah. toyed we with the idea earlier. of should I, uh, yeah. The, Go to the, teach the, at the University of Hawaii and correct. live out your life in paradise. Exactly. <laughs> the, the two... The two times I ex- allowed myself to explore uh-huh. uh, leaving, uh, one was in 1993, I think it was, when I toyed with the idea and put in an application to be a country director for the Peace Corps. Huh. And to go, to leave Lambda and to go do that. And then the other one was the, the couple Hawaii. years earlier in the, in the wake of my firing, unfiring, yeah. when I toyed with the idea of going to teach. And in both cases, Fate yeah. had its role, and I decided and or was encouraged yeah. to stick with the movement, and here I am. So um, you didn't leave, but I'm sure a lot of the people around you left, and some of them obviously left because of AIDS. And, yeah. And so how do so, you handle seeing people leave, whether it's because of a health crisis like AIDS? or Because I'm sure a lot of people gave up, and a lot of your friends and allies gave up. Because of these these blows, I mean, it's so true. What well, do you what do you do to steal yourself and steal the people around you? We're seeing people give up like that because that's got to be hard. Well, that's part. I mean, first of all, it, it is life. I mean, that it does happen, um, part, and it doesn't make it easy. But it just it is part of life. It is part of history. Mm-hmm. Um, partly by building and maintaining and nurturing a, a strong team, you hopefully can mitigate some of that. Although you know, there's always going to be some turnover. But we ultimately. At Freedom to Marry, after many years of learning how to do this and getting better as a manager and so on, and I made my mistakes and so on, but eventually got there mm-hmm. and had a great team, including people who knew how to do the things I didn't know how to do, like mm. like HR and stuff, mm-hmm. um, which is important. Uh, we had just like the dream team, and nice. they stayed with me. And you know, every once in a while, somebody would leave, and yeah. we would feel like, oh, how could she be leaving? How could oh, he be leaving? But yeah. the rest of us were still there, and to the point where we're still in touch with each other. I still have on my calendar regular check-in calls with a couple of my, uh, you know, top staff. Huh. Even though you know they don't work for me. Yeah, you're done. <laughs> we're you're done. One. We don't yeah. even have an organization, <laughs> but we we still check in with each other. And yeah. two of my former colleagues, um, the three of us now operate under the banner of Freedom to Marry Global, uh-huh. even though there is no organization. When we go coaching together, different uh, countries and efforts, including Taiwan and yeah, uh, cool. And, most recently, Switzerland. I'm very proud of Taiwan. Sure, you should be. I, my, I am, I am a lot of too. my family's from Taiwan. My yeah. family is originally from China, but hmm. my immediate family, like my mom, my dad, most of my aunts and uncles, are, right. are from Taiwan. And for those of you who don't know, Taiwan, I think, is the only nation in Asia. Is that correct? Ta- Taiwan is the only so yeah. far. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing place. And, and they really are pretty open to it. And it's. Yes. It's kind of amazing oh, how much than, it's changed, even open. even the older generation. You know, it's it's and after it's a we won, remarkable the polling has continued to go up, yeah, much as I was totally describing has. with the United States. Yeah, you know, I've got some some older uncles, like an old uh, military uncle who's in the Navy and he's a colonel and just grizzled, very masculine dude, and I'm pretty sure it's him. You know, he he was one of the people who like reached out to me and said, "Look at all this cool stuff we're doing." I'm like, "Really, you? Yeah. <laughs> You're like an old Navy vet." <laughs> Who like hates anyone who, you know, even dresses a little sloppily. And you're saying this is great that everyone's yeah. Yeah. gay and getting married and having the time of their lives. The and- Taiwanese government 
campaigns on it. Yeah, like they, no, they, they do. They do booths in other countries. Yeah, they do. Touting yeah. their progressiveness. Yeah, and so no, I'm, I'm proud. There of were them. two in particular, lots of lots of really good ones. But there were two ads that huh. our team that we were working with in in Taiwan did. I don't know if you if you've seen them yet, but if you have, there's yeah. the, what I call the grandmother ad. Huh. And then there's this father. Oh, I got to see these. I got to see these. Father ad, and they're ju- they're just every time I watch them, I cry. Aww. They're so good, even though I you know I don't understand them. They're yeah. Chinese, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> They're really excellent. Fortunately, yeah. my husband is Chinese, so he can tell me. Yeah, cool. Uh, but but you know, they do have subtitles too. Is your husband Taiwanese or he's no, he's Chinese. He's, okay. Mm-hmm. Have you spent a lot of time in Taiwan? I've I wouldn't say I've spent a lot of time. I've been there three times. Okay. You should spend more time there. Oh yeah, it's a, no, it's it's a fun place. Yeah. It's great. It's actually the most animal friendly nation in Asia too. There's a lot of animal rights activists, a lot of environmental activists. Vegan restaurants are everywhere, right. and I think. Taiwan's going to lead in so many different ways, and I'm so proud of them. That's you know? great. Especially yeah. in light of what's happening in Hong Kong, because it's super scary. Yeah. The contrast between Hong Kong and Taiwan. Yes. Although there's a lot of great activism happening in there Hong Kong is. still, despite the crackdown. But it's it's so scary. It's I was terrible. just I was talking to a UC Berkeley graduate student in journalism who's running a story actually about this conference. Um, she's probably going to mention you, I'm guessing. But she was telling me, and she wrote for the New York Times. Um, in 2019, during the height of the umbrella protest, when things were looking a little more optimistic. Mm. And I was, I asked her, look, how are you feeling now? And her response was, this is so sad. It almost made me cry. She said, everybody I know is in jail. Yeah. It's so scary what's happening there. And I don't, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to, I mean, a lot of them have fled, you know, they're all, all over the world now because even just posting the wrong thing can get you put in prison now in Hong Kong. So a lot of them are in the United States. I'm going to hang out with this guy, Alex Cho, who's been a leader in those protests in the next few months to see what I can do to help. Because if you don't know what's happening in Hong Kong, it's it's terrifying stuff. Just brutal crackdowns, people getting arrested, beaten by police. And on the one hand, it's scary. But on the other hand, it does inspire me that people continue to fight, you know? And, and it's, it's like you said earlier, we got to always loose forward, you know? So these folks are getting put in jail, but we got to find a way to see the silver lining, to keep moving forward. And yeah, and make meanwhile, not place. in any way to minimize or take the spotlight off. Yeah. China or Hong Kong and the work in other countries, but we have a lot of work to do in this country. That's too. true too. That's true too. Well, we've been talking for a while. I want to, I want to end with this question. Why, why are you talking to me and Steve Wise? Like what, what's your interest in animal rights anyways? Do you have an interest? What are your thoughts on the movement just substantively? You know, I've had the opportunity to, to talk with you, to talk with Steve, talk with Kevin and other animal rights activists whom I know, um, whom I'm inspired by. It, it hasn't been my cause. It hasn't been something I focused on. But I've always said, and I think I said this to you when you and I met, that mm-hmm. if I did force myself to think about it, I would probably realize <laughs> I'm not living up to my own values and not behaving right. So uh-huh. I should be better. And I'm, so I'm, that's as far as I've gone. But I'm, yeah. a, I'm aware of that. <laughs> so when I'm asked to do something, I, oh. I feel like I want to do it. And um, yeah, so that I mean that's that's the main that's really the main reason. It's like it's a cause I I support even though I haven't done anything particularly to help. Um, and you have, and therefore I thought, well, you've helped Steve and me. I've okay. talked to Steve a lot about this, oh, that's and, good. and our team has been affected a lot, even by the conversations we have, which haven't been that extensive. But I've read a lot right. that, that you've written. Yeah. So yeah, so I feel like if I can do at least do that, then yeah. I can feel a little better about that. Yeah, and um, I support. I, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. You know, I. As I as I am likely to say to the court in the the case that the Non Human Rights Project is doing in New York, you know, I'm not pretending to be an expert. I'm not pretending to have all the answers, mm-hmm. but I believe the questions are important and must yeah. be taken seriously about um, 
the rights of animals, the way to treat animals, the way we should uh, respect and make space for animals, the way we should consider animals' potential personhood or at least mm -hmm. bodily integrity. I, again, I, I don't know enough to know what the answer should be from my point of view. You guys do. You, you advocate for it, mm -hmm. and I'm happy to cheer you on. But I can at least say to the court, you know, there was a time when those questions were not taken seriously for gay people, when they yeah. were not taken seriously for women, when they were not taken seriously for black people, for Chinese. And uh, as an advocate, I do know enough to say you need to take these questions seriously. Yeah, you know, um, uh, Lawrence Tribe, who I think supported you yeah. in the early stages. And my con law professor. Yeah, and your con law professor at Harvard. He actually submitted an amicus yes, brief I, in I this know. case. I've read it. And he, he cites Lawrence, the, the gay rights case from right. 2003 that struck down the, the anti-sodomy laws across the country. And, and I forgot, you know, I mean, uh, Anthony Kennedy has like a, you know, mixed reputation in progressive circles. A lot of us are unhappy <laughs> with how far he was willing to go. But some of the language from Lawrence is powerful and beautiful. Oh, yes. And I don't, I, I'm going to totally butcher the exact line, but it's something along the lines of, you know, time blinds us to the injustice in which we live. That's right. And it's important for all of us, including Supreme Court justices, to recognize that we need to change. That's and right. That's, that's a pretty brave thing for a judge to say. Yeah. It's yeah. A, no, and, and it's, and it's it was right. really powerful. And it, was, it is powerful, and it's the right thing, and it's the kind of thing I'm, I do feel comfortable, comfortable saying to the court, even not knowing yeah. all that much about the law itself. You know, and one of the things I've, I've really noticed in the animal rights movement, I think this is true of... of um, of other parallels between movements. And, and honestly, it might be one of the reasons so many Jewish people participate in the civil rights movement is that gay people are massively overrepresented in, gay, in animal rights. <laughs> hmm. There are so many people. And what's particularly notable is gay people in positions of influence mm -hmm. are much more willing to take risks for animal rights. I'll give you an example. My, you might even know. Do you know Rob Duroff? I don't. His family is pretty influential in HRC. His mom was like in the board of directors of HRC. He's a professor at UCSF. And he honestly is, has not been primarily known as a gay rights activist. Uh -huh. He mostly does, he's a professor of psychiatry at UCSF who does research on trauma uh -huh. um, and helps a lot of military veterans. He's actually a military officer himself. But he's like written letters for us, you know, this ragtag grassroots group that's doing direct action, getting charged, getting sued and all these things. And here this is this military officer who's a professor of psychiatry at UCSF, writing us a letter. Mm. And I don't remember if I knew that he was a professor first or I knew he was gay first. Mm -hmm. But when I, I know when I found out he was gay, I was like, oh, I get it, you know? Like, because he's been through this. I mean, he's probably around your age, so I think he's been through the same generational struggle you have. Uh -huh. And it's been really difficult to get people in positions of institutional influence to get on board animal rights. And one of the exceptions is there are a lot of gay people uh -huh. who've been willing to do this. Yeah. Well, that's uh, good do you think that's, there's some truth to that, that there's something about that experience that... Opens I, I mean, I, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were some. Uh, yeah. you, you, you would like to think, and it is often true, though it's not always true, so it's not an iron law, that people who have experienced exclusion, oppression, discrimination yeah. should be vigilant and sensitive and aware. And, you know, as a stereotype, I think it is true for gay yeah. people. It's true for Jewish people. Mm -hmm. um, it's true for other minorities. It's, it's true, you know, the, the, the Congressional Black Caucus mm -hmm. was always super strong, relatively speaking, on LGBT questions, mm. uh, disproportionately so. That's awesome. So, so you know, there, there are plenty of counterexamples, too, from those groups of people behaving badly. Yeah. But you would like to think that those of us who know what it's like to be excluded, you know, discriminated against, treated unfairly, 
would stand up for others. Yeah. Well, it's certainly true of you. And again, thank you so much for the support, Evan. It means a lot to me. And thank you. And someday I want to introduce you to some of the animals you've helped us save because you're the, You've, you've helped us in high-level strategy, but the high-level strategy has had a lot of concrete impacts, including saving dozens of animals, getting a ban on fur pass in California. We use kind of the strategic models you set up hmm. to, to launch our fur ban campaign, and we've now banned it in Berkeley, San Francisco, California. There are a number of other states considering bans on fur, which will protect millions of animals from just ungodly suffering, and you've been a big part of that. Well, that's that is really great to hear. It makes me feel really good. Yeah. So my last question is, any advice you have for anyone who's listening to this podcast about change? What are, what are the things that you want people to take home about change, either personal transformation or social transformation? Number one, change can happen. So don't mm -hmm. wallow in the negative. Look for the pathway. Believe you can make change. Believe change can happen. It may take time. It may be difficult. It won't be linear, mm -hmm. but it can happen. And number two, be part of it. It's it It's it is fun to be part of change and it is rewarding. And as the little exchange I just had with Wayne shows, you may wind up finding you have an impact that you didn't even know about. Mm -hmm. like, I, I did not know there are animals out there that you think of as my having I do think that. been part of helping. And um, that, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Right on. Well, thank you very much, Evan. I really appreciate it. Thank the you. Time. Keep up the good work. Good luck. Yeah, let's talk again sometime soon. Hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It was one of my favorite that we've done for this podcast and it could be the last one we do for a while because again I'm going to trial in just two weeks on November 29th and I hope you do follow that trial if you enjoyed this podcast please share it with a friend post it on social media and thank you you know regardless of what happens on the 29th I'm just so grateful to all of you for listening in for supporting me over the years and also grateful to the team that's helped with this podcast including Priya Sahani who's been on the podcast but is actually the one who's editing this specific episode Ronnie Rose, who in many ways has been the, the mind behind this podcast, driving us forward, coming up with the ideas that we really need to have to make this podcast as good as it can be. Crystal Heat, Julie Waldrop, Shalola Lafakis, a wonderful support team. Louis Bernier, who has helped record a bunch of these podcasts, and so many other people I, I'm not even mentioning. But it's been a pleasure. And it's the holidays. It's a time to be grateful. And again, I'm just so grateful to all of you for everything you've done for me for the animals, and for just making this world a better place. Have a good one, everyone.